0: Hello, it is 2nd of December 2016, and this is episode 9 of Scavenger's Horde, a Star Wars podcast. I'm Rachel. And I'm Kirsty. We're here to deliver a regular rundown of Star Wars news, analysis, and commentary with a focus on the sequel
1: trilogy and the future of the saga. So, Kirsty, how's your week in Star Wars been? It's been good because after all that complaining on last week's episode about not knowing when the Rogue One tickets were going to come out in America, I finally got mine. Yay! That's so Yay. Yeah, yeah. I'm really happy.
0: You must be really excited.
1: <laughs> I am. Um I know we're going to get to this a bit later in the new segment, I think, but mm-hmm. there there were a bit of There were some problems with getting tickets online and stuff like that. It's been quite surprising. And I'm sure Disney are thrilled about it. (laughs) We got them in the end.
0: Yeah. I'm sure this struggle made it more worthwhile. (laughs) Yeah. It's a a bit dramatic and
1: exciting. It's like, will I get them? Will I not?
0: (laughs) (laughs) I had a bit of an experience like that. But yeah, let's say we'll talk about that for later when we get the segment on the tickets. Yeah. How about yours? Oh, yeah. My week, it was the most exciting thing that happened was that I saw Force Awakens again for like the millionth time (laughs) um so I had a friend over and often my suggestion when I have a friend over is like hey do you want to watch Star Wars and they're generally some level of enthusiasm less than mine (laughs) because I have a lot of enthusiasm (laughs) for Star Wars um and yeah we watched it and it was awesome and it was super awesome because we just watched Warcraft which it was awful so yeah. so bad oh my goodness and and i felt terrible for hating it so much because i really like the director the director is duncan jones and i think he's yeah. real really talented and i like his other films but warcraft was just abysmal I, i'd give it like one star and i'm normally pretty generous <laughs> my ratings but it was just incoherent and yeah it made no sense so watching the force awakens after that, and seeing how much like warmth and humanity and personality that film had compared to something that just felt soulless as Warcraft did, it was just lovely. It was a really great viewing experience.
1: Awesome. Because we're coming up to like a, a year of having that film. Yeah. And do you feel like you like it more than you ever did, or there are certain things you're pointing out and thinking, hmm, that's not quite as impressive as I first thought, or anything like that? I still like.
0: I think I still like it just as much as I did when it was on its theatrical run, if not more. Because I know that I liked it way more by viewing eight of the theatrical run than I did viewing one of the theatrical run. It was yeah. a film it took me a while to like adjust to and properly appreciate. But yeah, when I appreciated it, I truly appreciated it. And yeah, now I really love it. It's like one of my go-to comfort films.
1: Yeah, yeah I, I
0: just want to go like, oh, I want to chill and relax. I'll put on Force Awakens*.
1: Yeah, it has its dark moments for sure, but mm. it's ultimately a very heartwarming movie. Yeah, you feel good. You feel good watching it.
0: Yeah, it's great to watch with friends. It's really nice. Um, right, before we move on to news, there are just two orders of business I would like to do. First of all, I would like to say a big thank you to everyone who has rated and reviewed us on iTunes. You're amazing. So that really helps. And then the next thing is that we have an email now. So if you have questions for the podcast, which we answer at the end, then please email them to scavengershoard at gmail.com. And then you'll have a good chance of getting your question featured on the podcast. So with that said, we are going to move on to news. And the first story is the suggestion that Obi-Wan Kenobi may have a role to play in the sequel trilogy going forward. And this is the story. Speaking on Rebel Force Radio, Anthony Bresnikan commented on the possibility of Obi-Wan Kenobi having a role to play in the sequel trilogy going forward. I've heard rumours that the one reason they haven't moved sooner on Obi-Wan is that they're not done with Obi-Wan quite yet in the saga films. So I wouldn't be surprised to see an Obi-Wan solo film happen between episode episode 8 and episode 9. I think that there'll probably be some reference to Obi Wan in the saga films and his connection to whatever characters he happens to have a connection with. I've already written that I think that Ray has some kind of connection to him. Family connection. So if that's the case. Maybe we see part of that play out in the future Obi Wan movie. You and McGregor would be the perfect age to reprise that
1: character. So, what did you think when you saw this story, Kirsty? I thought it was very interesting. Um, I'm not wedded to any particular Ray parentage theory. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think that she's related to the main hero. I'm, pr- I'm pretty sure of that. Yeah. But I didn't have anything going in. It wasn't something that really mattered to me before watching the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that, you know, Obi-Wan as her grandfather or whatever has been uh, a theory since the beginning. Yes. But um, it does seem like the Skywalker and Solo theories have been the most popular. So mm. I'm just happy to see another one being floated. That's yeah. being taken a bit more seriously now because this guy, as we've talked about before, he's pretty in there with Lucasfilm. Yeah. So on on the one hand, it makes me wonder if if he really knew something, would he spoil it? Mm. Um. But the other, it's just it's just good to have this kind of discussion. It's a lot more interesting.
0: Yeah. No. Definitely. Um. For anyone who's listening who doesn't know who Anthony Broznicin is. He's basically the entertainment weekly journalist who gets all the exclusives on Star Wars. So if Lucasfilm have a story to break about the sequel trilogy or the Star Wars story films, this is the guy they tend to go to. So he clearly has a very, very good relationship with Lucasfilm. I think he also does hosting at Star Wars Celebration. Like that is how closely tied he is to Star Wars like as a as a company, as an institution. So he should, technically speaking, be right in their pockets. And if this rumour is completely groundless and bears no relation to what's actually going to happen in in the films, it would be very strange for him to be making these comments. Because otherwise he's jeopardising his own credibility and he's also posing the risk of annoying Lucasfilm and like jeopardizing this amazing access he has to all those stories. So
1: yeah. yeah, so it doesn't mean necessarily that Obi Wan is going to turn out to be related to Ray, mm. but I think it it probably does have some credibility behind it. This idea that they do want to do an Obi Wan film because everyone is in clamoring for it. Well, most yeah. people like everyone loves Ian Mcgregor as Obi Wan. I do anyway. <laughs> <And> <laughs> I like so it I too. so I would love to see that at some point. But it makes complete sense that if if there's something going on with him at some point in the trilogy, they're going to want to save it until afterwards.
0: Mm. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. I, I must say that the Kenobi theory is one, like, I, I'm i not, like, uber into Ray's parentage, but I had considered the various possibilities. And Ray Kenobi is one I hadn't really given that much credence to, just because I didn't see that much for it, if that makes sense. So there are obviously things like Obi-Wan saying, these are your first steps, and Maz's castle. So it's not like there's no connection at all between these characters. But I thought that could mean anything. But hearing right. this stuff, it is making me take it more seriously, I must say, because I like to think I'm the kind of person where, even if I initially don't give a theory much like of a chance, because I don't see any reason to believe it, if I get new information in, then I can like go back to it and reassess and say, OK, maybe there is something in this.
1: Oh, yeah. If, if they have a compelling way to give Obi-Wan a story after he's been on Tatooine and he falls in love with someone and has a family or whatever, great. I'm totally open to that, but mm. it's not something I currently understand as part of the character. Yeah. Um. But I'm open to it if it if it works, if it's a good story. So.
0: Yeah, and it definitely is all going to be about the story that they tell with it. And right now, like you say, that's a complete unknown because we have no concept of Obi-Wan as a family man at all. Obviously, in Clone Wars, he had a, a relationship with Satine, but obviously that ended quite tragically shall we say so it's like was there another relationship like on Tatooine did he go on to have a family there it's all all kinds of mysteries and Mm -hmm. yeah it's very intriguing but we will see in due course is there anything else you'd like to say about
1: Obi-Wan uh no I don't think so just that I really do hope they do eventually have a spin-off because you McGregor's like, he's a fantastic actor yeah, and he's just at the right age for them to do something like this.
0: Yeah, Noby's so, so perfect. It's like every time I see him on the Graham Norton show, because <laughs> Hugh McGregor always seems to be interviewed on the Graham Norton show, <laughs> um, they bring up the Obi-Wan movie. And yeah, you can tell he's up for it. You know, he's totally game. Like He's quite a good sport when it comes to these things. So yeah, take advantage of that. Like when you're done with Obi-Wan, Like, as he's going to be used in the films.
1: Just go wild. Go for it. Yeah. I wonder if this means that we could actually see Ewan in in the trilogy. Like, Mm -hmm. as a force ghost or something like that.
0: That would be quite radical. Yeah. Like, I remember there was a big outcry about Hayden appearing as Anakin's force ghost at the end of, I think it's the Blu-ray of... Return of the Jedi. So they obviously yeah. replaced Sebastian Shaw
1: mm-hmm.
0: and I know that caused lots of upset. So I do wonder if that would be quite a controversial move because obviously we've only seen older Obi Wan in the guise of Alec Guinness. And would it be like, well, Obi Wan just feels like appearing younger today. Deal with it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, you have to take some kind of artistic license. The 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 changing of Anakin was a problem for me because they just completely inserted him into that film where he didn't really belong. But if it's for a new film, it's like, yeah. you know, Star Wars fans are often resistant to change. Mm. So the special editions is like, oh, no, no, this isn't what we remember. This isn't how it's supposed to be. <laughs> but if it's yeah. a new film, I think it's different.
0: Yeah, no, I I get that. I think there's more of a, allowance for it in the films going forward because it's not like this holy grail that people remember from their childhoods and it's like you cannot touch a single frame of this perfect immaculate film or cry <laughs> That won't happen. So yeah. Yeah. We have space. Right, to move on. The next story is very exciting, so it's that John Williams has started to record the episode eight score in December. Or I should say he's going to start recording it. That's the impression I got from the tense usage. Anyway, it was an offhand comment in Variety and it said, he begins recording Star Wars Episode 8 in December and expects to record off and on through March or April 2017. So what did you think when you heard this news, Kirsty? I'm really excited. (laughs) Same. (laughs) Same.
1: Oh, I love it. I love his music so much. I'm Mm -hmm. really glad that he's doing Episode 8. I hope that he can still do Episode 9, but that might be jumping the gun a little bit. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I, and hearing that he'll be doing it through March or April, it's like, okay, so we're probably going to get something really good from Celebration then.
0: Yeah. No, you are so lucky because Kirstie's <laughs> going to Celebration. Like, I'm like a lemon. I'm stuck here on this pathetic little island. <laughs> No, it's fine. I don't mean to sound so bitter, but it's going to be so awesome. I, I'm going to be like a spirit animal. I'm going to be there in spirit. Yeah,
1: um, I wish you could come.
0: Yeah, I wish I could too, but plane tickets. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I mean, I'm I'm <laughs> still praying somehow that we'll get something before Celebration, but I don't know. I mean, they're still going to be kind of marketing Rogue One with the DVD release and everything. So they might save everything until April.
0: I think there might be something on the Rogue One DVD. I
1: think yeah. that'd
0: be a smart move for them. Um. But we will see because it's not like there was anything to do with Rogue One on the Force Awakens DVD, so yeah. that might be a tad optimistic. But yeah, like this to me, it was just amazing because it really struck me how far advanced they are in the process of making this film. Because someone put together like a list of the time timings for recording the music for the other films. And it was insane because there's maybe like a hundred days before the theatrical release that they were recording the score. But in this
1: case, it's over a year that they're going to start working on the score. Well, and we already bonkers. we heard a while back that he was already watching rough cuts of the film. Right? Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I'm hoping that it means it's going to be excellent if he's having all of this time. And it's yeah. such a contrast to Giacchino with... Rogue One.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that that's just ridiculous. I think Chiakino has six weeks and John Williams has over a year. Like probably like eighteen months. It's like you say we heard that he was watching a rough
1: cut a long time ago. So I guess we were saying last week, like the original release date of this film was in May. So if everything's being kept to schedule, and I think wasn't wasn't Ryan done filming actually earlier than they expected? I think it was a bit early. Um, I think not it, not an awful lot, but
0: yeah, I think they wrapped in either July or August. Yeah. So yeah, they were making very good time. Um, uh, like I hate I hate to sound too cynical, but obviously John Williams he is older now. I think he's like eighty three, eighty four. So I can't help but think that in some ways this is going to be a practical decision, because when you are that age, you can't plan ahead too far. You know, um. Yeah. So I know it's really sad. I don't like to think about it either, but I I do think it's a really good and sound move because, like I say, it gives him plenty of time to come up with a really great score. And yeah, it's also just a question of like getting it done. Like so, everyone can like take a breather and say, "Phew, beautiful John Williams score." Yeah, it, like it's gonna be so. I I can't imagine Star Wars like the main saga films without John Williams' music at this point. Because even the Force Awakens score, that took a while to grow on me. But when it grew on me, I really loved it. Like Ray's theme, the Jedi steps, like all those themes that are beautiful and they're iconic. And I think they're just as good as anything from the original trilogy, to, to be honest, in terms of musicianship.
1: Oh, yeah, me too. I, I really enjoyed that soundtrack. Yeah. <laughs> so, like,
0: I, I've heard it get a lot of flack, you know. So like, I've heard people say it was lackluster and disappointing. But I think that's just because a lot of it was new. And people have these old themes from Star Wars embedded in their head to such an extent that any almost anything that is new is going to seem lacklustre by comparison.
1: Yeah, it's probably hard for him to compete with something like the Imperial March because that goes beyond the music itself. Mm-hmm. It's so coded in society as yeah. like something associated with sinister evil, you know.
0: Yeah, even pe- um, people who really don't know Star Wars well, they know that music. Exactly. Like. It, and yeah, it's just incredible how like iconic those themes have become. So, yeah, uh, like like you, I'm just really really happy that John Williams is working on scoring this thing, and that we're gonna get another kick-ass John Williams score. It's gonna be great. Yay! <laughs> Yay! <laughs> I just realised. Sorry for being
1: <laughs> sorry for going so depressing <laughs> towards. Oh me. no! I, I it makes sense, right, for them to do that. Yeah. Now I, you don't want to think about it, but mm. they they probably have to. Yeah. You know?
0: No, exactly. I, I think it's just a practical consideration. I, I, I hope he lives to be like 130, and like the oldest man ever, and still making amazing music. Yeah. But yeah, he's just a legend. Um, right. With that said, we will move on to the Rogue One news segment, which is going to be quite substantial because, for obvious reasons, there's lots of Rogue One news. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the first story is that Rogue One has broken pre sale records. And the story from Variety. And it goes, Rogue One, the Star Wars story, is already a hot ticket. The space opera spin-off recorded the second highest first day of pre-sales in domestic box office history, IMAX Entertainment CEO Greg Foster said at an investor conference on Tuesday. The record holder for first day pre-sales is Star Wars The Force Awakens, which debuted last year to nearly $248 million dollars. Rogue One is on track to open to north of $130 million when it debuts on December 16th. Foster didn't give specifics about how many tickets had been sold. So now is your time to shine, Kirsty. <laughs> Tell me about your experience of Rogue One ticketing, North America well, style.
1: <laughs> yeah, last week I mentioned that I really want to go and see it at Cinerama, which is a big cinema down downtown in Seattle. Mm-hmm. Um, And I did get tickets to see it there, but not for my first viewing. It was... Uh... They they hadn't updated their website in time. It kind of, and people were queuing in person down there, so it makes sense for them to get first dibs. Yes. Um. So I'm gonna go to a regular cinema near my house for the first one. Mm-hmm. But I have got tickets to go and see that when my sisters come visit on the 23rd. Oh, that's um, really nice. Yeah. So that would be a nice thing for Christmas. Um. But I'm already planning my repeat viewings. <laughs> so hopefully it's a good movie.
0: Yeah. No. for me, I've done it really backwards. I have tickets booked for what I hope will be my second viewing but not for my first viewing because obviously for podcasts and just being in Star Wars fandom reasons I need to see this movie the day it comes out because if I don't I'm totally left behind (laughs) so I need to see it the earliest opportunity but I am going to see it in London at the Science Museum but that's only at the weekend and obviously it comes out on a Wednesday or Thursday I can't remember which um That's and obviously thursday, i think okay yeah so it comes out on thursday and i need to see it on thursday for reasons and yes and i still need to book those tickets so i have the science museum tickets but not the thursday tickets mm-hmm. but that should be fine because i looked and i'm in like a provincial town and it seems like the tickets are hardly selling <laughs> oh really <laughs> yeah they are it's not the most popular cinema in the world and it's definitely yeah. not the greatest cinema in the world but it is a cinema where i can see rogue one and i also just bought a unlimited card so I can oh, go see do. yeah I did literally just before I started recording the podcast yeah. so I can go to the cinema however many times I want and see this baby over and over and over
1: again this well. so is going to be like round baby <laughs> yeah I saw that they were doing those I think it's regal cinemas in America that. Mm-hmm. yeah and that's a pretty good idea I kind of wish they'd done that for The Force Awakens yeah um, because you do end up going to see it a lot <laughs> <laughs> yeah you do don't
0: you <laughs> <laughs> yeah No, so I thought now is probably the time to do this and save lots of money um and yeah i basically plotted out all the films that were coming out in 2017 and i judged how much it would cost if i didn't get the card and then i compared it and it's like okay i'm gonna get the card yeah <laughs> so
1: there's it's lots good of movies
0: yeah i felt like it was sound
1: yeah um, but the, the fandango website did crash here yeah um, as people were trying to get them so i had two computers going <laughs> trying to get them and um eventually got them in the end but it was like a bit a bit nail-biting which I that's kind of exciting you know i bet. <laughs> feel like it's an event
0: yeah no totally i um had to go into like one of those automated queues when i got my tickets to the science museum but thankfully there wasn't any problem and i was able to get good seats for the time i wanted but i bet that would have been different if i'd been trying to get seats for like the first night showing which i wasn't so i yeah. was good but only by happenstance so it was great
1: yeah we'll be going to see it on the thursday as well the first night so hopefully we will both have seen it in time to do our friday podcast
0: yes no we should definitely aim for that at all costs because that actually works out really neatly doesn't it see yeah. on thursday podcast on friday okay mm-hmm. awesome um yeah and just on a more general note beyond our personal experiences of ticketing this is obviously great news is not surprising news because we knew Rogue One was on track to do well. So I think we discussed the tracking figures la- in last week's episode, and they're very high. Yeah, I wonder
1: if they're going to adjust those now.
0: Yeah, like I-, I think if the pre-sales are this like strong, you would think that they'd upscale it. But in the Variety article, it did still seem quite conservative. It said around 130 million dollars. Mm. So yeah, I get- I guess it's really hard to judge, but I reckon it will do well. I- I'd almost be willing to bet on it doing over 150 million but I, I say almost i'm not quite willing to put money on that yet Let, <laughs> let's see another week and track how the interest goes yeah um but yeah it's doing very well so that's good so we like to see rogue one doing well
1: it's yeah like, definitely hey.
0: um <laughs> and that brings us neatly onto our next story which is that tony gilroy has a big rogue one payday and this story is from the hollywood reporter and it goes thusly. Rogue One might be about a group of rebels absconding with plans for the Death Star, but they aren't the only ones making out like bandits. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Tony Gilroy, who was brought in to rewrite and help oversee reshoots for the Gareth Edwards-directed Star Wars film, out December 16th, will pocket in all for $5 million for his efforts, say sources. Gilroy, writer of several Bourne movies and director of Best Picture Oscar nominee Michael Clayton, was first brought in to help write dialogue and scenes for Rogue's reshoots and was being paid $200,000 a week. I'm in the wrong job, according (laughs) to several sources. That figure is fairly normal for a top-tier writer on a big-budget studio film. But as the workload and the reshoots expanded, so did Gilroy's time and paycheck. Gilroy started on Rogue One in June, and by August he was taking a leading role with Edwards in post-production, which lasted well into the fall. The reshoots are said to have tackled several issues in the film, including the ending. So, Kirsty, what did you make of this? Uh it's a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was what, That's what I was thinking. Like, I'm really bad at maths, but I was trying to do like the mental maths to figure out how many weeks that was if he was on 200k a week,
1: and yeah. he ended up five million dollars. <laughs> it just it sounds like these resh because. Um, People like Pablo Hidalgo on Twitter have been <laughs> quite salty, really, in terms of people talking about the reshoots and how there was that figure 40% of the film was being reshot, right? Yeah. Um, I think I think Making Star Wars reported on that originally. Mm-hmm. And Pablo was like, oh, everyone's making this into something more dramatic than it actually is. But this really does sound significant.
0: It, it really does. And I, I do seriously think it's damage control and defensiveness when people like Pablo like resist anyone even talking about the reshoots. Yeah, because, and you can understand that. Yeah, yeah, yeah no sure. Like I uh, no, understandably they're gonna be very protective of this film. And I'm sure that everyone is working their butts off to make sure this film is the best it possibly could be. Like and they're therefore very like acutely aware of any criticism and any negative feeling.
1: Oh yeah. Uh, the thing is you can acknowledge that these reshoots happened and mm-hmm. still feel good about the movie because presumably it's To make improvements, yeah. So, you know, you'll you'll hopefully end up with a better film.
0: Yeah. No, exactly. I think that's kind of why I liked the interview of Michael Giacchino last week, because he was not trying to hide what a mess this film has been behind the scenes. Yeah. (laughs) Like he was just saying he didn't really want to think about that too much because he just wanted to come in and do his job, and focus on that. And like I, I really respected him for that because it's like you're not trying to hide that there's problems in this film but you're not dwelling on them because that's not the point. That's not why you're here. Yeah. So Yeah, I appreciated that. Um. And yeah, I, I can understand all sides, but I, I prefer like just straight up honesty, like what Michael Giacchino managed over like just denying outright that there's any problems.
1: Right, because if the film itself turns out to be excellent, then mm. that is what's going to count decades from now. Yes. People people aren't still going to be talking about the fact that there were reshoots. They're going to mm. be talking about how great a film is.
0: Yeah, no, exactly so. So. I'm not sure if I've mentioned it before on the podcast, but I really, really love Westworld, which is like the TV series that everyone's been talking about lately on HBO in America. Mm. And it's just so good. But that show, it was a complete nightmare behind the scenes. I think they first filmed the pilot well over a year ago, maybe even more like two years ago. Is insane. Like it was constantly delayed and put back and they had to go back and rewrite it all and reshoot things and they poured money like nobody's business into this project. But tell you what, this show is incredible and they've done such a great job on just making it work and making it all seem cohesive and feel incredibly rewarding and intricate. So that's a great example of something that could have been a disaster where they had to go back and make lots and lots of changes and revisions and it really paid off and improved the final product. So I hope it's going to be like that with Rogue One. Obviously it's very different from film to TV but I think it does just demonstrate that it's possible to go back and reshoot stuff and inject lots of money into it and have that be worthwhile and actually make a positive difference.
1: Yeah, I, yeah, I'm not concerned about it. Like mm-hmm. it's hopefully we end up with a fantastic film. And yeah. in terms of the things we've been hearing about why the reshoots happened and what the story seems to be now, mm-hmm. that seems like something that would appeal to a broader audience as well. That it has this emotional heart and there's humour and and love and camaraderie between the characters. Yeah. And that and then you get more of a backstory and emotional pull to the the side characters as well.
0: Yeah, no, definitely. Um, on Rebel Force Radio, the same interview where he mentioned the Obi Wan thing, Antony Anthony Bresnikin, he mentioned that he'd spoken to Rizamed, mm. and that Rizamed had told him that when they first shot Rogue One, so principal photography, his character Bodie Rook, he wasn't really properly defined. There wasn't like much of a backstory there. So then that's something they tackled with the reshoots. Like they went back and they gave him like more to work with as an actor, and. That makes me glad because Riz Ahmed is such a good actor. You should not waste him on a paper thin character with no depth. Like that's just criminal. Um, It does reiterate to me that Rogue One really seems to have just gone before cameras way too early. It should not have started filming when it did because they clearly weren't ready. If like they're now coming out and just openly saying my character wasn't well-defined. So we had to go back and define him. Mm. That's, quite a big problem but yeah yeah, it's most important to me that they did recognize that and they went back and fixed that so i think
1: that's quite a common danger with these big ensemble movies Mm. um ones i'm thinking of are things like the avengers and those big comic book movies where you have so many different characters that you can't really spend an awful lot of time on them but if you write the scenes well you can very quickly get these emotional hearts to the characters that you don't need to have an awful lot of exposition on yeah but it could be just as easily that you would have them as like cut out cardboard cutout characters that don't really add much. They're just kind of there as filler. Yeah. So I'm exactly. glad that they went back and paid more attention to that.
0: Yeah, no, definitely. It seems like they're making changes for the right reasons, which is important to me. Um. Right. We'll keep this baby bouncing along. And <laughs> the next story is that Tarkin is confirmed for Rogue One. And, this is yet again a story from our friend Anthony Bresliken. <laughs> he is providing us with lots of Rogue One material right now. Um, yeah, and the story goes, The Imperial Commander, played by the late Peter Cushing in 1977's original Star Wars, has long been rumoured to make an appearance in Rogue One, which takes place just prior to the events of that first film. Now, at long last, in a teaser to promote the advance ticket sales that began at midnight on Monday, we catch a glimpse from behind of the resurrected villain, watching from afar as his precious Death Star is assembled. John Knoll, the executive producer and visual effects supervisor for Rogue One, hinted at something revolutionary in a recent interview of EW. Asked what holy grail the visual effects designers were chasing with this film, which never-before-seen bit of technology they innovated, Knoll said, I have to tread lightly there, because some of the fun bits of innovation are stuff that I've been asked not to talk about yet. You know, we want to hold that back. Wink, wink. so Kirsty what are your feelings about seeing Tarkin again?
1: I'm really interested to see how it's done Mm. because this could be excellent or it could be terrible (laughs) yes yeah Yeah.
0: there's a grand tradition of diving steep into the uncanny valley with um, CGI recreations dead actors
1: yeah I mean we've been hearing rumors about this for a while and Mm -hmm. um, he's in the Catalyst book as well he's written really well in that oh nice Um, so I, yeah, I was thinking, yes, they're probably going to have them in the film, but I'm, I'm reserving my judgment to see how well it's done because it could be really bad. I know you brought up before the Audrey Hepburn <laughs> ch- chocolate advert, yes, which oh, is creepy,
0: nightmares, nightmares, <laughs> and it, and it's even worse because it's so close. Is like that thing was maybe like a millimeter off being photorealistic and completely convincing, but the fact that it's that close but still not quite close enough that almost makes it ten times worse yeah cuz it's this close to being real but you your eye just knows it's wrong you cannot trick the eye when it comes to a living person who've seen like acting on film it's like seeing an eerily realistic mannequin of that person act and it is just creepy as hell and and yeah i'm especially like precious about this cuz i really love peter cushion like not just in Star Wars. I love him as an actor generally. I actually went to a museum in the town where he lived, like until he died, um, because they have like a really cool collection of like his personal effects Mm -hmm. and like this little sketchbook that he filled with these like portraits of people that he was just observing, like when he'd go to have his dinner in the local restaurant. And yeah, he just comes across as like this really like charming, sweet, clever man. Mm -hmm. And yeah, like I just love him. Like he's been in the films I've watched since I was a child. He was in lots of the Hammer horror films as well. Yes. And I love those. Um although he was pretty much always the good guy. Like it's funny because he got typecast as like the monster man, you know, because he was associated with this big horror film studio. But that doesn't really reflect the characters he played and it certainly doesn't reflect the kind of man he was because he was so sensitive and softly spoken mm-hmm. and everything. Um, but yeah, I need to stop, like, creeping on Peter
1: <laughs> No, I- that's the thing, like, there are these people out there, like you, who are huge fans of this character and this actor, mm. so it could, I'm hoping that you know, I'm hoping that it's great. Obviously, yeah. But something like this, and I'm concerned about the ethics of it in a way as well. Like mm-hmm. using someone's likeness, and obviously, you can't get permission from them. Yeah. Um, it could, you know, if it if it went badly, it could be an insult to their memory.
0: Yeah, I I do wonder about the legality of it because he he presumably had some kind of estate, someone in charge to manage the estate, and I wonder if. Like they had to go and ask permission, like to recreate his likeness.
1: I think they would have to.
0: Yeah, you'd think they'd have to. Like, it's not like you become part of the public
1: domain when you die. <laughs> no, I mean the the Audrey Hepburn example. They did have, they did have to pay her family for that, right?
0: Yeah, I'm pretty sure they did because, especially because she still had living children. Yeah, Peter Cushing. He didn't. He never had children, mm. so it's obviously a bit of a different situation. But. I'm sure there must still be like heirs to his estate in in some respect, even if that's like a lawyer's office somewhere. Right. So yeah, like I I'm excited. So like I said, I really like this character and I love Peter Cushion, but I just hope they do it well and that it's not too cheap. Like I, I don't want to see Peter Cushion like resurrected for like a bunch of like extended scenes in this thing. Oh no,
1: it's got to be something that's really blinking your miss it, surely. He's just gotta be in the background or something. Like they it can't be a huge significant role right
0: I reckon if they're talking about it in these terms as like the Holy Grail of special effects I, I think I reckon there'll be some kind of like big pivotal scene that he appears in and, and is he in Clone Wars talking
1: uh, I actually can't remember so I was I'll just thinking
0: like there must be like voice alikes you know actors who can imitate Peter Cushion's voice because yeah. obviously they can get Peter Cushing, bless him to do the voice even if they can digitally recreate his likeness so yeah I I reckon there's going to be some kind of big pivotal scene because I think almost if they do just like a blink and you'll miss it thing like walking by in the background of a shot that's just not worth it so I'd like to see it be important in some way but not exploitative and that is just a really hard line so I, I just hope they can respect that
1: yeah well we'll see yeah I mean he I remember he was definitely in Rebels, and I think he must have been in the Clone Wars, but then they had a different voice actor, obviously. It was just. Right, yeah. You, you have to be careful because it is a very iconic character.
0: Yeah. No, Peter Cushion, those cheekbones, they're
1: like razor blades. Yeah, that's amazing. amazing. With the animation was really cool for Rebels. Like, mm. uh, yeah.
0: yeah. Badass. <laughs> um, right, then the next story is that the first clip from Rogue One has been released. Um, and this is a clip that I think aired when Felicity was being interviewed by Jimmy Fallon on late night TV on in America, and it's basically a brief clip showing Jin and Cassian taking out a group of stormtroopers.
1: Did you watch the clip, Kirsty? I did, yeah. Um, so I do You mentioned this, and I it's exactly what I thought of as well. Mm. It's very similar to the moment where Ray is attacking the people who are trying to steal BB-8 from her, and yes, Finn, Finn looks on. Yep that okay the cynical cursey here again it's it's a bit of a tired trope to be like wow a girl can kick ass you know it's like very clear that the the male character in that moment is supposed to be like a reflection of the skeptical male fans who might be out there who are like oh could this girl really hold her own in this star wars movie (laughs) oh she can (laughs)
0: <laughs> do you know what i mean yeah no i totally know what you mean and that was exactly the same thought running through my mind it's like oh seriously guys especially because it is so so similar to the way the same scene's done with ray and finn yeah so it's like we just had this in the last star wars movie i'm sure it's not representative i'm sure those characters are nothing like ray and finn but i i kind of wish they hadn't done that because it can't help but invite comparisons and rogue one needs to be its own film its own thing so they shouldn't like be ripping themselves off so flagrantly and like you say it's just a generic trope having like the badass woman like kick down a bunch of soldiers
1: right and it's cool i love to see jim being badass and stuff. It's awesome but well it's not just that she's doing that it's that it's drawn attention to in that way where um, the audience is kind of looking at it from the male character's perspective. Yeah. And you're supposed to be surprised and impressed that she can somehow do this. But, like, <laughs> I don't know an awful lot about Jin's character yet in terms of her experience fighting as an adult. Mm. But Ray was a scavenger. Of course she can kick ass. Like, she's, yeah. she's doing that every day of her life.
0: Yeah. So... Like, yeah. to be fair, I think what we know about Jin, it does make sense. It should have those kind of skills. She's meant to have, like, been a street rat on your own since
1: 15. <laughs> oh, well, that's what I'm saying, that yeah. it, it could easily be that, yeah, that's just what she does. And I don't see why it should be drawn attention to just because oh, she's a right.
0: friend. Yeah, yeah. No, I see what you mean. It's it, It's almost like it should just be taken for granted. Like, you don't need to put a big spotlight on that.
1: Is that what yeah. you're saying? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, I, I get it why they're doing it, because it's a very quick way to address... Um, that potential trepidation, yeah. But do you need to do that at all?
0: I, I hate to say, it, but I almost think you do. Oh. Like because that, like I, I don't think you do. Not it's certainly not for my sake or not for your sake. Because to us, that's just completely self evident. Like it's like, yeah, she's a woman; she can handle herself. That makes sense given her background. Um, but like this clip, it's aimed at like a mass audience of Joe public. Like who are potentially being exposed to this character for the first time, and so they need really, really clear telegraphing of what she can do. And I hate to say it, but you are going to get like a bunch, like people with more conservative views and like the kind of view where it's like, oh, she's a little woman. I don't understand how she can take out all those soldiers. Huh? <laughs> so, <laughs> I guess it's like and they almost need an self an in, in, in a point of view character to represent that perspective. I wish they didn't
1: but yeah it it just takes me out of it a little bit because it's mm. not even just star wars that you see it in like i said it's it's a trope that you see constantly in yeah. things where like women do something impressive and it's like oh wow for a girl yeah.
0: <laughs> yes it's almost like these things always have an asterisk on them impressive yeah. for a girl
1: <laughs> yeah yeah i mean i i, I thought the clip was funny in other ways. Like, I liked yeah. the bit with me 2 so That was cool. Yeah. I was looking forward to seeing him.
0: Yeah. No, I, like, generally, like, besides being a bit disappointed in that element of it, I thought it was a really strong clip. And I really liked it. And I thought, and it made me feel better about the movie. So it had, like, a really nice energy to it. Mm-hmm. And I really liked the humour. Like you so say, that joke with K2SO, like Jin shooting the first K2SO <laughs> and then the actual one coming in and it's like did you know that wasn't me? Yeah, <laughs> just like, oh yeah! <laughs> I-, I love that, that just struck exactly the right chord for me and that was reassuring because humour can soften fall flat mm-hmm. and it's like yes, they made it genuinely funny I'm proud of you guys And <laughs> um, What did you think about the music? So that's the first time we've heard any Gia
1: Oh, I thought it was great I thought it I fit know. the scene really well
0: yeah no same it's obviously not like an iconic theme and it's no <laughs> it's not like it's meant to be but it complemented the scene nicely and yeah i had that like bounce and rhythm to it which is really mm-hmm. good <sighs> right then the next story we have lots of rogue one <laughs> stories sorry guys <laughs> But we're well, this to- one's kind
1: of rogue one and episode eight
0: yeah exactly it's like a special bonus edition <laughs> Um, right and oh my goodness yet again it's from Anthony Brosnican like (laughs) you just cannot get rid of this guy love you Anthony (laughs) Um, right and basically there's a timeline video that's presumably put out there to Spell it out in very plain terms. This is when X happens, which is fine. So lots of people need that. There's lots of confusion about where where Rogue One takes place. I haven't even attempted to explain where when it takes place to some of the people I know, because I just know they cannot comprehend it. Um, it's <laughs> yeah. I don't know why it's that complicated, to be honest. <laughs> like just before A New Hope, <laughs> plenty of people just struggle perceiving films as anything cover than completely disposable and throwaway entertainment.
1: Oh, oh my um, favourite thing this week actually uh-huh, has been yeah. um people going, oh, so there's not gonna be a sequel to Rogue One <laughs> yes. No matter how successful it is. I'm like, there there already is one. It's Star Wars.
0: Yeah. When I saw like outlets reporting on that everywhere. <laughs> oh my god. I, I like it and just shook my head and it's like not today,
1: Satan. I Not thought it they. was a. I thought it was a joke. <laughs> I thought it was the onion or something.
0: Yeah, I was like, why is this a story? Why does Kathleen Kennedy need to come out and say there won't be a freaking sto- sequel to the freaking film? Yeah. film that is a prequel to film happens like <laughs> five minutes after this one ends?
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, hopefully, when people get to the end of Rogue One, they'll realise why there isn't a sequel because it leads directly oh, oh, oh. into that the actual original trilogy like it's yeah. right up to the point where leia receives the plans so
0: it's That's so sick. dumb yeah. uh yeah sorry um that, that sorry
1: je- sorry for the rant
0: don't worry that needed to be said um but anyway the point here is that anthony broskin released this timeline video and it indicated links between rogue one and other things and it indicated links between rogue one and the clone wars indicated link between rogue one and the empire strikes back an indicated a link between Rogue One and Episode Eight.
1: Mm. So, what do we think that link might be? Okay, so my the current theory mm-hmm. is that it's something about the Wills, because
0: okay.
1: um, the Temple of the Wills is on Jedha, mm-hmm. and then we have that extract from the the Journal of the Wills at the beginning of the Force Awakens novelization. Yes, about the resolving of grey through refined Jedi sight. Mm -hmm. um and then i took that um that whole poem to be about like the the bringing balance of the force to kind of recognize that the jedi were wrong or the jedi of the prequel era anyway Mm -hmm. um the Sith were wrong and there's some there's some kind of way eventually for people to wield dark and light and that might have been the way ancient jedi were doing that um and i'm hoping that that feeds into episode 8 somehow and um the themes of the sequel trilogy but it's total speculation obviously it could be something completely else that
0: is such a good theory
1: i hope i hope that's true like because i know there's been all this emphasis on rogue one being a standalone movie and i think that's totally possible but it's also amazing if they can use it to expand the lore, Mm. and then that would still feed into the new trilogy
0: yeah no, totally. Like, that's an excellent theory. I hadn't even thought about it in such intelligent or deep terms. Yeah, so... I mean,
1: it's been kind of iffy with um, why that that poem is at the beginning of the novelization, because obviously it's not mentioned explicitly in The Force Awakens. Yeah. And um, I think someone's asked Pablo Hidalgo and he said, oh, Alan Dean Foster decided to add that himself. But, <laughs> but at the same time, I feel like it has to have some significance and maybe they're just not allowed to elaborate on that just yet.
0: Yeah, like, that would seem like a really weird thing for them to just say, yeah, Alan, go and smack it in, go wild.
1: Yeah. like so,
0: I, I don't think that works. <laughs> <laughs> um, Yeah, like, no, that's a really good theory. And I could definitely see that being the case because, as you've said, we already know that there is, like, quite a lot of suggestion of the will's presence on Jeddah, I think, which is like this place of pilgrimage for people who want to be close to the force and believe in it and so on. So, yeah, I could definitely see that being revisited. So we keep on hearing that Episode 8 is going to be the film where they really explore the nature of the Force mm-hmm. and they go into that in a big way that we haven't properly seen before. So, yeah, I'd really like that connection. If there is any connection, I'd like it to be that. Um, because when I saw this, like it made me think about this um, theory, this fan theory, that came out at the same time. Um, ha- have you seen the theory I'm alluding to, Kirsty, or would you like me to explain more?
1: Uh is it the one about the Knights of Wren? Yes. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um but, like we did actually get an email about this and someone said they thought it was a really interesting theory and that like they liked the guy who came up with it. So like I don't want to dismiss it out of hand. Um I definitely don't think it's correct for multiple reasons. Um, but at the same time, I can appreciate that there was at least an argument there and they had put some thought into it. And they'd even referenced the Art of the Force Awakens, which I can always respect. It's a very respectable source.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but yeah, there are lots of reasons why that would not be the case.
1: How <sighs> old would those characters be at this point? <laughs> uh,
0: I guess the question is, how old is Donnie Yen? <laughs> right. So that would no. be a, a good foundation point. Let's see. Okay. Donnie Yen. Okay, right, so Donnie M is 53, and Rogue One takes place approximately, oh god, maybe like 35 years before The Force Awakens, so that would put, like, Chirrut, like, who this Fury video suggests is, like, one of Kylo's Knights of Ren, it would mean he's, like, 80 at that point. Um... So yeah, like excluding the more wacky theories where there's like carbonite involved and they freeze them for some arbitrary reason and then let them out so they can serve Kylo Wren. Um, it just wouldn't happen because yeah. Kylo's crew did not look like pensioners. <laughs> I,
1: don't, I don't mean to sneer at this theory in particular. It's this thing in Star Wars fandom where everyone has to be someone else. <laughs> yes. So, it's not that one in, in particular. It's like Snoke is so and so, Ray is so and so. Like, it's just maybe the characters are new. Yeah. Maybe that's okay. It's a big galaxy.
0: Yeah. No, like in that kind of theory crafting, like it's all people having fun, which is great. But it is a bit aggravating to me sometimes because those are always the theories that get the most traction. Like, you look at these videos and they get hundreds of thousands of hits and the vast majority of them are completely implausible and bizarre. It's like Snoke is Palpatine. <laughs> and yeah, just theories that have no like, traction to them at all and clearly aren't going to happen. But yeah. those are the ones people latch onto. And I think that almost distracts from the fact that there are genuine like ways of looking at these films and approaching the characters and themes and scenarios and then really studying them and contemplating them in order to, figure out where these films might be going and that gets missed because like you say it's like oh x is x oh my god my mind is blown (laughs) um right at that point we will move on to our final rogue one story which is that we have some quotes from kathleen kennedy talking about the fan reception of female leads and the prospect of female directors in the star wars franchise so the first quote is from an interview kathleen did with the new york times and this is how that goes. The casting of women in the lead roles of fantasy films like Rogue One, The Force Awakens and Ghostbusters has proved unexpectedly provocative, drawing the ire of those few frustrated fans who call it a concession to political correctness. Kathleen Kennedy commented, I have a responsibility to the company that I work with, she said. I don't feel that I have a responsibility to cater in some way. She added, I would never just seize on saying, well, this is a franchise that's appealed primarily to men for many, many years, and therefore I owe men something. And then the second quote is from an interview with Variety, and this one's about the female directors in Star Wars, and it goes, we want to make sure that we, when we bring a female director in to do Star Wars, they're set up for success, says Kennedy, they're gigantic films and you can't come into them with essentially no experience. Kennedy says that because there haven't been many opportunities for women to direct big movies, the Lucasfilm team is trying to identify talented helmers at the early stages of their careers. We want to really start to focus in on people we would love to work with and see what kinds of things they're doing to progress up that ladder now and then pull them in when the time is right. So what did you make of these quotes, Kirstie? Uh
1: Well, I, I agree with her strongly on... The idea of not catering to the few people who have a problem with female characters because that's it's obviously not something that affects the bottom line financially Mm. you know these are being incredibly successful films and they've been well received critically or Mm. the force awakens was we'll we'll see what happens with rogue one so yeah i completely agree with her that you shouldn't cater to people who are just being sexist like that's not a good business plan (laughs) yes and and you know you have that existing fan base sure not to say that male fans of star wars are somehow in like in their sexes that's not it but the idea that you want to draw in new fans so that is going to include more women more people of color if you want to you know Mm. emphasize that you're going to have a diverse cast like that's all those are all good things in my book
0: yeah no exactly it's about like broadening the scope of star wars and extending beyond like pleasing one type of audience like, which makes me really happy. So it doesn't mean that these films they're not going to be enjoy- enjoyable for men anymore, or that there's going to be nothing c- that like male fans can appreciate in these films. That's obviously not the case. That's not that is not what is being said. It's just that like the pr- primary point is that Kathleen Kennedy and Lucasfilm are not interested in catering to the kind of people who boycotted Ghostbusters just as a concept because it was for women. It was like, right. How dare you do this and touch this sacrosanct property? Like like you should not cater to those kinds of people because that is like just misogyny just to be opposed to something on the basis of it having women front and centre. Because yeah. that was like an element of the response to that film. It's not the only element, but it was an element. And yeah, so I'm pleased to see her saying that she's not interested in pleasing that segment of the audience in any way.
1: Yeah and I hate this idea that men can't enjoy stories about women. Yeah, same. it's you know that's that's damaging. It's not even true. Yeah. Like, so
0: no, it's it's really demoralizing and I, I like to think it's a minority, but like I do see that sentiment expressed. I do see well what characters are there in The Force Awakens for my son to identify with now. Because <laughs> the only strong character is Rey,
1: obviously. Like, I
0: I've literally seen that. It's like
1: yeah, Kylo Ren, Finn, and Poe aren't popular at all. <laughs> yeah, it's absurd, and um, like, also, like, that a son can't identify with Ray. Yeah, like that is really happening. damaging because you know, young female fans have loved Luke and loved Anakin, and, and sure, they also love Padme and Leia. But there's this idea that female fans can identify with the male characters, but somehow it's not true in the reverse. It's yeah. just ludicrous.
0: Yeah, no, exactly. It's like there's something emasculating about a man identifying with a female character. Well, that isn't the case in reverse. And like you say, that's just so wrong. And if, if I had a little boy, I'd be really proud of him if he saw Ray. And it's like, wow, I want to be like Ray. You know, like, I'm yeah. sure there are little boys who do think that. And I, I really hope there are boys like who play as Ray in the playground. And stuff, you know, and who want to dress up as Ray? Because why the hell not? Rey's a yeah. frick badass. Even it the... if you're a boy or a girl, you should still be able to enjoy that character and aspire to be like her.
1: Yeah. One thing I really liked about the thoughts, oh, going slightly off topic here, mm-hmm. but another thing I really appreciated about it was that they did kind of subvert these ideas of masculinity even in the male characters. Yeah. Like that traditional idea of the stoic hero. Poe and Finn are both very compassionate. Friendly, genuinely kind people. It's yeah. not like they're putting on the fake bravado or anything like that. Yeah. Um. And Kylo Ren, you know, he he's depicted as a very emotional, sensitive character, even though he's a villain. Yeah. And that, you know, people find that very relatable. So,
0: yeah. no, that's true. Like, and and it's really interesting because Han Solo, who's like the ultimate male icon from the original trilogy like he encapsulates like the coolest aspects of like masculinity see he's like a devil may care badass like who has all the ladies and he yeah, was but that's just a, a front <laughs> yeah yeah I, I i know it's just a front but it's also the kind of character archetype that is very much like from that period you know like in terms of the period the film was made the 1970s like, and also yeah. you do still get, like, charming rogues. So it's like you have Star-Lord from Guardians of the Galaxy. It's not like that's the type of character that's extinct. But the most interesting thing I found was that in The Force Awakens, Han, he is treated like a relic, a dinosaur from a previous era. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of the problem you have with Han and Kylo because they're just so complete, on such completely different paradigms in terms of, like, the kind of people they are and the kind of masculinity they represent. Yeah. And... Yeah, but we can go into that later. So, we're having a kind of <laughs> run spotlight. <Woo! laughs> um, but yeah, um, we don't have much time, so just quickly, what did you think about the comments about the female director question?
1: I've seen that a few people have been criticising her for this, mm-hmm. um, but I think what she's doing is that she's an- acknowledging that a mm-hmm. female director would be under greater scrutiny than the male directors are. Yeah, and that is messed up. Mm-hmm. But she's aware of it, and she yeah. wants when they do bring someone in they want her to be set up for success because they know as unfair as this double standard is, the first female director of a Star Wars film is going to be under a hell of a lot of pressure because unfortunately women are judged as a whole. If if someone succeeds or fails, it's a case of, oh, okay, well, you did right by your gender. Yeah. Whereas men are, you know, they're given the privilege of being assessed as individuals. Yeah. Um, I think it's a shame. I, I do think that people have a point about, um you know the the directors they, they've chosen ryan johnson and Kel- uh, colin Trevorrow. they don't have an awful lot of experience they mm-hmm. you know they have a few films under their belt and they've been well received um but they're not jj J. abrams in terms of you know he was brought in for the first film and i think that was a really wise decision yeah but there are female directors out there who have films under their belts and mm-hmm. are you know admired for their, their talent but maybe it's just not the same. Like we do have to acknowledge that there is sexism at work here. It's not just a case of, oh, just hire a female director already and the problem will go away because it's mm. not that simple, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, no, I-, I think you make some really good points. <sighs> I-, I totally understand where she is coming from the- with these comments. Like you say, you can't just hire a female director as if you're in a vacuum and there's going to be like no comeback from that decision that no one's going to like ever comment on the gender of the director of this film. Like that's a pipe dream. That's not going to happen because of the type of world we live in and the way the industry works. But like, it is a bit frustrating. So I do see lots of very talented female directors and they just don't seem to get the opportunities the male directors do. Like, and and that is not Kathleen Kennedy's fault. That's not the fault of Luke's film. It's like an endemic problem just with the filmmaking industry. And I just kind of feel a bit frustrated because I see, especially on TV, I see lots of great like female directors working on TV. Mm -hmm. And whereas like a great male TV director, he'll probably be given a chance on a film. You know, I have seen that quite a lot, like quite a few of the Game of Thrones directors. They've gone on to make feature films based on the work they did in that show. Yeah. And like, I don't see the female helmets of equally good episodes of shows like Game of Thrones and Westworld getting the same opportunities. And,
1: yeah, it's just like,
0: oh, guys, you can do better than
1: this. Yeah, I think what she's saying is that it's going to happen. Mm. They're obviously being proactive and looking at people and and talking with people. Because weren't there talks a while back that they they were speaking to Ava DuVernay? About... I've heard
0: her name mentioned. I'm not sure if there's, like, been reports of, like, official conversations. But yeah, it was just, be... like, rumours. Yeah, I think it's more rumours. And obviously we know she consulted with J.J. J. Abrams on The Force yeah. Awakens and how to give that film extra punch. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, I'd love to see Ava DuVernay do a Star Wars film. That'd be epic. It'd be so
1: good. Because she's extremely talented. Uh, Another I... thing that I don't think is given enough attention is that they're not hiring female writers as much. Like, Yeah the the books Claudia Gray and other female writers have been doing excellent work there but the films and again we're coming back to this idea that we have these female protagonists but they're being written by men yeah and it, it doesn't mean that they can't be written well but i i would be really interested to see a female screenwriter
0: yeah no same and that's especially striking when you think that the story group has so many female members yeah so it's not like there's a lack of input from women on the creative side of things But like you say, in terms of the directors they have and the screenwriters they have, they are all men. And again, it's like, Congress, you can do better, especially in terms of like a screenwriter, because I think a female screenwriter, like if things weren't to go perfectly, I think the female screenwriter would be insulated from that in a way that the director wouldn't be. Mm -hmm. So I think as the screenwriter, you're not considered responsible for the whole project. So... I'd almost like to see them try for a female screenwriter really soon. like and then take baby steps towards female director because they, yeah. they can do it. And there are plenty of incredibly talented women who deserve these chances. And you just need to give them the chances to begin with, because otherwise they're never going to get the experience Kathleen Kennedy is saying they need. It, it reminds yeah, it's, me like the job market. You know, like when I came out of university, I'd apply for all these jobs and I'd hear back from people as feedback, you don't have enough experience. And it just makes you feel so hopeless because it's like, how do I get the experience? Yeah, exactly. How am I going to get the experience if no one hires me? <laughs> so Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's, it's frustration. It's definitely a problem. And uh, I'm I'm glad that Kathleen Kennedy's talking about it. Um mm. I just Yeah, it's not going to be easily solved, unfortunately, by just simply hiring one director because if If that film didn't do well, it would almost be like, "Oh, we're back to Square one," and there's this idea that we wouldn't hire another female director because that film failed, yeah, which would be yeah. awful, yeah, I can totally see that happening, I think or at least that being part of the criticism, mm.
0: I think a lot's gonna ride on how Wonder Woman does next year because yeah. obviously that's directed by Patty Jenkins, and I think this marks like the first time like a woman has held like a, helmed a major Hollywood blockbuster. Um, le- no that's wrong it has helmed a superhero film like I might be wrong please tell me if I'm wrong Um, but yeah so this represents like a massive gamble because I hate to say it but if Wonder Woman bombs and people hate it Patty Jenkins will get the blame for that right. even though she Almost certainly, probably won't deserve the blame because if you look at how DC
1: is doing just generally, it's clearly very badly organized. <laughs> well, this is what so... I'm kind of saying about Kathleen Kennedy. Probably doesn't want to ruin some young female director's career if the mm. film doesn't go well and then she gets the blame.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, totally. Which would be really unfair. And it, and to be honest, I expect female directors are probably terrified about taking that property on because they're not stupid. They know the
1: pressure they'd be under.
0: Yeah,
1: I, I think it would just like give any reasonable person another breakdown. <laughs> right yeah is the, that's the case is, is anyone actually coming forward and saying they want to do it and not not to mean like they, they don't want to do it or women don't have any interest in working on star wars but that it is such a huge amount of pressure yeah to be the first you know
0: yeah no you'd have to be an incredibly brave soul let's put it that way i'm sure it will happen i i just really hope it will happen sooner or later because like, i don't know i guess just the comments seem quite wishy-washy to me but like you say that I think that's of necessity. She can like come out and say, yes, for the film coming out in 2020, we all have female director. And, right. Like, exactly. She can do that. So, yeah. But right, we have talked about news for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> so we can move on now to the spotlight section. And this time it's going to be a Kylo Ren character discussion. Um, this is probably going to be the first of several parts because I can always guarantee there will not be time to get through the whole to get through all the points we have to make about this character, so there's just so much to say. So we're going to try and get through the character as he's presented in The Force Awakens and explore his journey in that film and then we'll probably continue along this theme next week. Um but yeah, Kirsty, I was just wondering if you wanted to kick things off by like explaining how the character is introduced and like your
1: response to that and what you thought they were trying to convey. I think that his entrance is fantastic because they really do play with the expectation that he's going to be the new Vader, mm. um, which they were very much doing with the promotional material leading up to the Force Awakens. Yeah, you know there was this mysterious figure clothed in black. He got all the, the mask, and obviously we hadn't seen his face yet. I think there was one promotional mm-hmm. shot with um, Adam Driver's face. It was that Vanity Fair spread. Did yeah. you see that?
0: Yeah, I did. Yes.
1: Um, but aside from that, it's very much about him being this anonymous, terrifying figure in all black. Yeah. Um, and then you very much see that come through on in the Jakku scene when he turns up after the stormtroopers have been terrorizing the villagers and um, he's cuts an imposing figure. He comes off the shuttle very dramatically and it's all about him showcasing his powers and how ruthless and efficient he is. Yes. Um, and his treatment of Poe and Law especially. Mm. Um, what do you think about that scene?
0: Uh, yeah, no, like I, I thought it was a great introduction to the character, uh, and I, I found it interesting because even though, like you say, they really make a point of creating an ominous impression of this character, he they introduce him along the lines of "This is your baddie. This is your dark sider," for the Force Awakens. That's very much like how he's first seen i like how they immediately begin to like throw doubt in your mind and raise Mm -hmm. questions about what this character is yes because obviously you realize that there's this prior link between him and law santaka like um you can't deny the truth that is your family and like kylo very promptly tries to deny it by presumably cutting law santaka's head off (laughs) Um, and yeah like that's interesting because you don't get that with vader in A New Hope. I think lots of people, when they first saw A New Hope, they actually thought Vader was a robot. Mm. <laughs> and y- you can understand why that is, because you really don't get much of a sense of Darth Vader as a live and breathing human. He's just a really tall guy in a suit who's great at being the scary and intimidating. And with Kylo, while the first visuals of him you get, they support that impression. Like, this, as soon as words come out, as soon as he starts interacting with other people, you realize ex- how acutely human this character is and that immediately gives him like a different vibe and a, a different flavor D- did you find that
1: yeah i feel like as soon as he starts talking you can immediately see that it's a young man in there yes in the way he like swaggers around and he obviously feels like he has something to prove and it's almost like petulant the way he's talking to law yes like oh you're so right like trying to have the upper hand but actually just betraying the fact that he has all these emotions yeah um and he's like going out of his way to appear like he doesn't care. Yeah. Um, and then I might have mentioned this before, but I think the interaction he has with Poe there is very interesting as well. Mm. Um, because Poe is like, oh, who talks first? You know, you can tell that he's not really that afraid of Kylo Ren. Yeah. And I, I don't, I don't think he knows who he is. But there's something about him that is, it's obviously supposed to be like, oh, he isn't the same as Vader, even though he wants to be and looks like him. He's yeah. not. Because no one would ever talk to Vader like that.
0: Yeah, no, exactly. I think like he he is perceived like as a petulant child in, in, in many ways. And he doesn't do himself many favours on that front because he often acts like one. Yeah. Um and like you say, I think Poe in that scene he's like responding to like how like temptuous this character seems. Like he can't feel too afraid of him because like he knows that's a human guy under there like vader he was more like machine than man by the point of the original trilogy not so with kylo
1: yeah well when poe po says it's hard to to tell with all of your apparatus <laughs> yeah um it's like yeah because he doesn't need to wear that mask he's yeah. doing it to appear scary
0: yeah exactly which is really funny I fe- it's almost like people if they don't know they just sense that from how kylo carries himself and behaves. Like, and I can buy that because there is just something about his body language that communicates so much about that character. Like, you can just tell from the way he walks that he's, like, insecure, that he's boiling over with this, like, energy that he can't hide. And that affects how other people treat him and speak about him and stuff. And it's really interesting.
1: Yeah. What do you think about him noticing Finn and then choosing not to do anything at that moment?
0: I, I love that. So That's it just adds like another layer of intrigue to mm. like both characters because you're you're like, why is he looking at him? What's he seeing there? Like what's caught his attention? And obviously that's an intentional mystery. Like, but like, and like you say, it does tell you something immediately about Kylo because if Vader had, had that sense, the goodness of one of his stormtroopers and sense that he was disobeying orders, he wouldn't have hesitated to, like have him killed or have him imprisoned yeah but kylo he just stays quiet about it like yeah and yeah uh, immediately creates this vibe this very ambiguous character where you don't understand his motives
1: okay i could be wrong mm-hmm. but i seem to remember i think it might have been the editor mary oh what's her name the um the editor oh. of the force awakens it's like oh marianne brandon or something. Yes, marianne Brandon. Um, yeah. I seem to remember her being interviewed at some point and mm-hmm. saying that the scene with um Kylo saying he feels the call to the light, mm-hmm. um that was supposed to be in response to him letting mm-hmm. Finn go. It was originally supposed to be much earlier in the movie. Yes, you're right. So it's, it's this different. idea that he felt compassion for Finn. He recognized that he didn't want to be doing this mm-hmm. thing and he let him go. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just a case of him being unsure about something. Yes. He saw that Finn was um, rejecting what was going on and he let him go. Yeah. And it was like his compassion made him fail. Mm. And that's why he has these tantrums, I think.
0: Yeah. No, um, you're, that's a really good point. Um, I, I think that scene is just another reminder of like Kylo's fatal flaw, which is yeah. the fact that he is weak in the sense that he is compassionate. And like, he does have mercy where Darth Vader would not have had mercy. And that's what frustrates him about himself because
1: he, he doesn't want to feel that he doesn't want to be merciful. <laughs> Yeah, I, and I find that really interesting about Kylo and Finn's dynamic mm. that he projects onto Finn, and by the end of the film, obviously feels this, you know, hatred and wants to attack him and hurt him. Yeah, but it's it's almost because Finn is a representation of his compassion and how that makes him fail.
0: Yes. Yeah, no, exactly. I think Finn embodies a lot of what Kylo could have been, and I think that registers with Kylo on a very acute level. And it's very painful to him. Like yeah. and it it just makes all of his self loathing and self hatred even that much more intense.
1: Yeah, I'm really interested to see how their dynamic evolves across the trilogy.
0: Yeah, no, definitely it's gonna be very curious because obviously everyone's talking like about Kylo and Ray and what's gonna happen with those characters, but I think people often forget that there is a very important link between Kylo and Finn as well. Yeah. Like not just in, because those characters share a direct connection, which they do, but also because they both had relationships with characters who mean something to the other character. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if that means makes sense. Yeah. Um, right, so we'll keep on moving along. And then the next like element of Kylo in the Force Awakens that is worth discussing is kind of like how Kylo fits into the first order and also like the relationship with Snoke because that's essentially what most of what we see with Kylo after the scene where he's on Jakku. And, yeah, you get the delicious sniping between (laughs) Kylo and Hux, which is highly amusing. Um, What did you make of the dynamic between those characters, Kirsty?
1: I think it's immediately obvious that they don't see eye to eye. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And that they they do kind of embody these two um, kind of opposing, in a way, sides of the dark side in terms of the politics and military tactics side of it Mm. and then the more spiritual aspect yes and you kind of get hints of that same thing in a new hope right with vader talking to the other people like in that imperial context and they're talking about like his his phony religion or whatever they say Mm. um it's kind of like there's something that they can't understand and i'm guessing that hooks is kind of in that same vein that uh he just doesn't understand Kylo doesn't really respect him very much like they just have completely different objectives but somehow they have to find a way to work together
0: yeah I think it was in um I can't remember no I can't remember what it was now but I saw someone make the comparison that Kylo and Hux are like church and state (laughs) so Kylo's church Hux's state yeah that's a good point I, I love that analogy it just struck me as so perfect because like Hux is so like grounded and like he's clearly like the logistics man. He's like, Okay, we need this many space credits to get the evil death weapon built <laughs> and he's probably been like working on budgeting for that thing since he was like six. And then Kylo, he's like just so heavily ideological. And like I think Adam Drive himself has drawn like parallels with Kylo as a terrorist. Mm-hmm. So, like the kind of young man like who sees these like ideological organizations and thinks that's the kind of cause that I want to fight for that's the kind of cause I believe in, and so he like goes towards that rather than the kind of environment he was born in It's like a form of rebellion and also is like identifying with this other system that represents a contrast to the one he was previously familiar with um and, and yeah it, it's just so interesting because obviously that you don't go into any great depth because the force awakens is very fast paced and of necessity, but you really do get the sense that Kylo, he doesn't really fit very naturally into the first order. Like, and it's even more extreme there than it ever was with Darth Vader, I think, because obviously Darth Vader, he stood out in the empire. He clearly wasn't like quite in there with the officers club. But he did have a place, you know, like even Leia, she like recognised Darth Vader as like Tarkin's like lapdog. Yeah. <laughs> almost. Um, so people knew what he was doing there. Whereas like Kylo, he just kind of like strides in and is like, do the thing, do the thing. <laughs> <laughs> and, and yeah, people, they like obey him, but they obey him kind of because they've just been told they have to obey him. Right. Like not because they really understand why he's there or what the hell he's doing.
1: Yeah, there are a couple of scenes where they do draw attention to the fact that he's not really involved. Like um, when Hux is giving the, the speech at the rally, mm. Kylo is very pointedly not there. He's on the destroyer and then watches the the Starkiller the fire yeah. towards the Republic. And that's supposed to be a moment where he's isolated and feeling something by himself. Yeah. And then obviously you also get the bit where he's talking to Vader's helmet. So it's this idea that there's only the helmet that he can talk to in the whole organisation. He doesn't have any friends or confidants. Yeah. Um, He's talking about how Snoke suspects something. So he doesn't really feel like he can talk to him either. Mm. That's a really good
0: point, actually. I hadn't thought about that. That's actually really sad. It is. (laughs) That there's no one alive who Kylo feels he can talk to. So he has to talk to the mask of his dead grandfather. That's really depressing.
1: Yeah. He's clearly supposed to be a a lonely person.
0: Yeah. No, exactly. And like, I think it's also very telling that when Kylo has that heart to heart with Vader's mask, he himself keeps his mask on, which is absurd because it's not like it's for anyone else's sake. It's purely for his own sake in that scene because there's no one else there. Like but he still keeps the mask on, and it's like, boy, you do not need to keep the freaking mask on when you're on your own. You have nothing to prove, but then he does the same to prove, so he has to prove it to himself that he's like this hard, like emotionless badass,
1: yeah, and when he's saying the words, you can kind of hear his voice break as if he's crying inside the mask, yeah, but because he has the mask on, it probably doesn't it's he doesn't have to accept that that's what's happening,
0: yeah. No, exactly. It's so much that character is like about self denial, and yeah, like it is a very interesting just type of character. Like because you often see these criticisms of Kylo, it's like emo. You know, it's like oh, he's so emo, and like that just gets me because like people use emo as like a way to discredit people's emotions mm. and like to discount them as having like any relevance or importance. And I'm sorry, but people are people. Even men, believe it or not, get emotional and feel like this conflict and like profound fear and insecurity. And like that's what Kylo does. He like represents all those like deep emotions and fears and turmoils.
1: Yeah. I think it's a real problem in society where, you know, men aren't encouraged to express their emotions. Yeah. And maybe do feel as isolated as someone like Kylo does, where they can't talk to anyone about those deep seated fears. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I really think that he is supposed to and, you know, as you mentioned, Adam Driver has called him a terrorist. And I think JJ did in The Force Awakens commentary as well. Mm. He is supposed to represent that idea of the radicalized young man who dreams of the days of the empire that were before he was even alive. Yeah. You know, and you can see that happening today. It's yeah. something that I, I really think that he's supposed to be a villain that's re- very relevant to today's modern age and the politics that are going on.
0: Yeah, no, I think um, just yesterday an interview between Adam Driver and Michael Shannon came out and like they were both talking about how their films are socially conscious. And like Adam Driver, he made this point about in Star Wars, there are these two organisations, the Resistance and the First Order, they're both absolutely convinced they're right and that they're doing the right things for the right reasons. like But obviously they can't both be right because they're completely ideologically opposed. Mm-hmm. And that is relevant because you do see that all the time in our modern society, like because these terrorist groups, even though they seem completely reprehensible and evil to us, they don't to the people who are in them, not to the people who choose to go to them. And yeah, I, I find it interesting that like, that's the kind of theme that they've picked up on for Star Wars and, and also for the character of Kylo in particular, because, yeah, it raises questions about what are they going to do by drawing that analogy, because it's either going to be well, they're all goners then, or there's going to be some like suggestion of hope or like a future there. Um, but yeah, that'll probably be a separate redemption <laughs> redemption discussion at some point. Yeah. Um, what did you
1: get from Kylo's relationship with Snoke? Oh, okay. Well, there's obviously a ton of backstory that we don't have here. Um, mm. hopefully, we'll get more innate, yeah, um, but I think it's creepy as hell, <laughs> yeah, like there uh, there's a, there's a conversation between them in the novelization that was cut from the film, mm. but Snoke is talking about Kylo in these really creepy ways, like that he is a sculptor, and um Kylo is this like. Wonderful piece of material that he can sculpt something beautiful out of, yeah. and that he—he's the perfect embodiment of light and dark, which I think is really interesting because mm-hmm. we've never really heard of of someone who practices on the dark side described in that way before. That he has equal potential for both sides of the force, yeah, which I do think kind of hints towards where things might be going for him. I hope that he can eventually balance the two, yeah, and find mm-hmm. peace. Um, but it's just a—you know—you kind of get this vibe from Snoke that. As Leia says, he was watching. He was there in the background. He was always there waiting to mm. lure Ben Solo away. And there's this idea of seduction to the dark side. Yeah. It's just, it does not make me feel good. What yeah. about you?
0: No, it, ha- it has really icky vibes. Like, um, it's not the kind of dynamic you want to think about too much, almost, because, like say, those vibes are there. And it's just really disturbing. Um, yeah. So it, the, the, it, it does like raise analogies to things like grooming. Right. You know, like in real world terms. And like, like again, to tie back to like the whole radical- radicalization theme, in real life, you do find that these like young boys, they are like drawn to these like charismatic, like older, powerful male figures who like offer them like a system that they can connect to and aspire towards that they feel like they lacked before. And I think Snoke's kind of analogous to that, like as in like tempting Kylo
1: into like this... New ideological system, like yeah, he, and giving him a new name and not allowing people to give like just to, to say his born his birth name, yeah. That he's he can't be known as Ben Solo anymore or whatever his surname turns out to be. So when Han says it on the bridge, that must be the first time he's heard the name Ben in a long time. Yes, and that does something to people's identity. You know, you take away their name. Mm-hmm. We see it in the reverse almost when Poe gives Finn his name.
0: Yeah, that's a really and good
1: think, point. Yeah, I. It's an important part of people understanding themselves as individuals and how they relate to the world around them.
0: Yeah, that is a really, really good point, actually. Now I think about it because you have a character who's denied his name and then another character who is very much like the complementary character to Kylo in The Force Awakens. And he's given a name and he embraces it wholeheartedly. So, you have one character who's like embracing everything with open arms, and another one who's like rejecting everything and pushing it away. Yeah. And, yeah. Like, it's another good, like, stress of how Finn and
1: Kylo are, like these perfect counterpoints to each other. Oh, and definitely. All, like, Kylo is desperate to rid himself of his humanity, and Finn is just finding his. Yeah. Wow. You know,
0: they're both like on parallel trajectories, but like different directions almost. <laughs> yeah. But hopefully they stop somewhere. Um,. But yeah, like I found the um, dialogue and the novelization about Kylo particularly creepy. Like you say, it's all that stuff. Like it, it just calls to mind life feelings a possession and stuff. Like treating him as like this material that he owns and can mold as he pleases. And yeah, it's just not nice.
1: Yeah. And when we get to the point on the bridge scene again, when Han's saying Snoke is using you. Mm. It's it is clear that Kylo knows that, but yeah. doesn't seem to value his own life enough to recognize that that's a problem, and he needs to deal with it somehow. Yeah, it's like he just doesn't have any sense of his own self worth.
0: Yeah, uh, and I remember I think in the script, um, they make a point of saying that Snoke's tone, become, tone becomes like fatherly, um, after Huck leaves, like in the first scene when it's like Hucks, Snoke, and Kylo. So like they make a point of stressing that snoke adjusts how he presents himself when he's with kylo alone because it's like there's this whole
1: special relationship with kylo that isn't there with Hux. he's like he's fatherly and he's telling him that he needs to kill his own father as a test Mm -hmm. that is just horrific
0: it is I, i think it's all very much about how i am your father now I'm the male authority figure that you need to dedicate yourself to. So you cannot have this prior male authority figure who might distract from that. Mm. I, I think that's a big part of why Killin Han is such a test and something that Snoke will, requires him to do, because Kylo can't have two fathers. Like and Snoke is like determined to be the only like authority figure in that sense in Kylo's life. Yeah. So yeah. It's very interesting. Um Right. There's, oh yeah, there's another thing I'd like to say about the scene where he's talking to Vader's helmet and it's that he says, show me again. And I think it's the power of the dark side. And I was just wondering, do you think that means that he's had some kind of vision before? Like that he believes
1: was sent from Vader? Or do you think he saw like Anakin or something? I think he might have. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of my kind of pet cannons that I'm not <laughs> too attached to, but I, I think has merit that he has had a vision before and just like Ray sees him in her vision, he might have seen her. Yes. And that's why he's so like, oh, you need to stay with me and I'll teach you like mm-hmm. um, that. He is somehow feeling like his destiny is on the dark side and that Vader sent that to him. It probably wasn't Vader because we know that Anakin was redeemed, but it could be Snoke kind of manipulating things in the background. Yeah. What do you think?
0: I actually have an even more elaborate version of that oh, theory. Okay. Go for um, it. And it's that, obviously, Rey, when she gets her vision, like that's channeled through the lightsaber, the Skywalker lightsaber. Yeah. And going by Kylo's reaction to the saber when he finally sees it at the end of The Force Awakens, it seems pretty clear to me that he's probably seen that lightsaber before, if not possessed it himself. So I like the idea that when he was younger, maybe like a teenager at Luke's Academy, like, he touched the lightsaber, and touching the lightsaber for Kylo, just like touching the lightsaber for Ray, it triggers a vision, and that, but that Kylo's vision, it sends him off on a really dark and bad direction, whereas Rays appears to send her off in a good direction towards Luke and helping the Resistance.
1: Yeah, I think that's totally possible, because um, I think that they originally did have in the shooting script that they were going to show how Maz stole the saber from Kylo and the Knights of Ren. Yes, so I think he he was originally supposed to have it. And no, we only get that hint of it in the mm-hmm. finished film when he says that lightsaber belongs to me, but you, you don't know whether to believe him or not. He might just be feeling entitled to it.
0: Yeah, <laughs> no, exactly. I I like the idea of them both having like parallel but converging visions so that we're going to revisit the vision in episode eight, but then we're going to see a different side of things. And that because like the two characters are going to like put both their sides of things into like one channel, then that will allow for a full picture of exactly what went down in the past. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, that's heavily speculative. So who knows? should save that for an episode eight predictions video, probably. (laughs) (laughs) So many podcast spotlight topics, man. It's it's funny because you talk to people and you say you have a stars podcast and you can tell they think, how do you find things to say? And I feel like saying, oh, you have no idea.
1: Yeah, we overanalyze everything.
0: That's, <laughs> that's how we do it. <laughs> we spend half an hour talking about a single line. <laughs> <laughs> um, right. To keep things moving, um, then we will talk about Kylo and Ray. So obviously Kylo hearing about Ray and then tracking her down and kidnapping Ray and interrogating Ray and so on and so forth. Um, so yes, what struck you about Kylo's dynamic with Ray, Kirsty? So it's quite a big question. It's like saying, What's the meaning of
1: life, Kirsty? <laughs> <laughs> well, I do feel like there's almost this um destiny idea that they were predestined mm-hmm. to meet. Yeah. Um and I I do wonder if it's like the will of the force because it's almost like as soon as Kylo hears about the girl from Mataka, mm. that becomes his focus. Yes. And I know he goes to Takodana and it's like, Oh yeah, the, the droid was spotted in the forest with a girl. But it's not the droid he goes after. Yeah. He goes after Rey And I again it might come back to this idea that he's seen her in a vision. Mm. Um, but it might also be something that never ends up being quite explained, that they're just somehow drawn together.
0: Yeah. No, it's really interesting to me because early on, in The Force Awakens, you get the sense that Kylo's obsessed with finding this map, obsessed with finding his uncle. But then, as soon as, like you say, as soon as he hears about the girl, then it's like his whole trajectory changes, and suddenly it's all about Rey. Like right up until like he finds out that Han is on Starkiller base, like it's all about Rey for him. Like the map itself fades almost completely into the background, and. Yeah, it's just really interesting to me that they made that decision because they're clearly trying to convey to the viewer that Kaido is unduly fascinated by this girl. And it does raise the question of why is just the prospect of this girl on Jakku helping? the stormtrooper escaped the droid. Why does that pike his interest to the extent that it does? And I don't think we're meant to understand the answer to that yet. If there even is an answer, who knows, there's like fifty mysteries they need to explain.
1: Yeah. That I might be one of the ones that get get stitched. Obviously, logically, we know that Kylo has come into contact with other people who are very strong in the force before. Like mm. he was part of Luke's academy or not academy, but whatever you want to call it. Um and He has this relationship with Snoke, who we're guessing is Force sensitive. Mm. Um, But he is so rattled by the fact that Rey is so strong in the Force that she can hold her own against him, and she defeats him twice. It's like that just becomes the new focus for him, and like he's even defending her powers to Snoke when it's Mm. like, oh, you know, she resisted you, and he's saying, well, she's stronger. She's strong in the Force. You know, she's she's untrained. That he's genuinely impressed by what she's able to do. Mm. So she just somehow kind of takes over as the priority for him. And then I know that Snoke says, Bring her to me, but at the end of the film again, he's saying, You need a teacher. It's not really about Snoke in that moment. It's not about what he's necessarily been ordered to do. Yeah. He's lost his focus.
0: Yeah, no true. And it's all I can show you the ways of the force, not Snoke can show you the ways of
1: the Force. Yeah, I think again it kind of comes back to this idea that he's so lonely, and he says that to Ray, right? When he's reading her mind, yeah, he's it's almost like he could be talking about himself. Yes, like you really see that as polar opposite as these two characters seem to be. They also have a lot of common ground, and it's ground that they wouldn't want to admit to anyone and not anyone else. Yeah, but because they've read each other's minds, they know how lonely and isolated and unhappy the other the other person is. Mm. And even though Ray has these. Um, developing relationships with other people like Finn and Han Um, because they're not Force-sensitive and they haven't been in her mind that same way they can't know her in the same way that Kylo does now even though that was it was such a brief moment
0: yeah no exactly there's this suggestion of there being like a profound connection between those characters that is unique to them because they're also the only two young Force-users in this movie Uh, and that is significant because obviously there's Leia but that's a very very different kind of relationship because She's Kylo's mum, and she's also like a motherly figure to Rey herself, like when they hug at the end mm. of The Force Awakens. Um, so yeah, they're like on a level footing in a way no other characters are. And, and I really like that about The Force Awakens in general. You find that there's lots of um, complementary characters. Like It's like we were saying with Finn and Kylo. Those characters complement each other so well, and they like make really good counterpoints, and it's really fascinating to see... How they interact and bounce off each other, and I think it's the same with Kylo and Ray just, just in a different sense because they're coming at that dynamic from a very different place to what Kylo and Finn are.
1: Yeah, for sure. I think all of the the new main characters have been written really well t- as a whole. They're not written in isolation; like they're all they're all connected and kind of bounce off each other and complement each other in these really interesting ways.
0: Yeah, And no, definitely. I think that's why it's good to when when you do these character analyses and that's why it's so helpful to talk about the characters relationships with other characters as well because it can be a bit of a trap to just discuss the characters as like islands but all these characters and especially the characters in the horse awakens you can't understand them unless you think about the interplay between them and the characters that surround them
1: yeah i think if you if you look at what someone is reacting to you can kind of gauge why something is happening so Mm. when he goes back to ray's cell after being told to bring the girl to me by snoke she's not there and he has this tantrum again it comes back to this idea that he underestimated her just like he did with finn he didn't quite understand that it meant that finn would leave um Mm. and that he would betray the first order and he didn't think that ray would be able to get away he just didn't even consider it and yes. now angry at himself for allowing that to happen, so he has that tantrum, and you kind of get that funny interplay with him and the stormtroopers walking away. But mm-hmm. it does very quickly show you that this is a pattern for Kylo that when he fails, that this is how he reacts. He's so angry at himself.
0: Mm. Yeah. No, exactly. Like there's so much projection involved. It's really funny. Yeah. Um, what did you think about like the kind of things that Kylo was saying to Rey, like in the interrogation, because? Like that interrogation scene in itself is interesting because it forms such a counterpoint to the interrogation of Poe earlier in the movie, yes. which we kind of glossed over um, before. But yeah, it's important to again all this talk like about comparing things and thinking about character dynamics and like parallels between them, like with Kylo and Poe. Like is, there is so much like, emphasis on like the utilitarian violence of that scene, like and how dark and grim and foreboding it is like this interrogation with Poe is still very much about stressing this Kylo this really creepy, intimidating, badass, Mm -hmm. like, and there's no humanity to him really aside from like his snarkiness, (laughs) Um, which is equally matched by Poe. But then with Ray, it's just a completely different quality to the scene because like, it starts off of him crouched before her, just looking up at her. And that's immediately very strange because that, like, almost suggests like, subservience to her in some bizarre way. And it just makes no sense because the captor should not be in that kind of position in relation to their captive. Mm. And just the lighting is different and, of course, like the interactions are completely different. Um, so yeah, what did you make of all that, Kirsty?
1: Yeah, I think the way that the scenes are lit and blocked tells mm. us a lot um, about the contrast because when Poe's in the chair um, and Kylo's stood up at full height, he is... The angles of the camera are supposed to show that he's this very imposing, looming presence. Mm. Um, and then, as you said, in Ray's interrogation, he starts crouched down on the floor, and there's lots of lighting that kind of bathes Ray in light as she's in the chair, and mm. he's looking up at her. And then, when he stands up, he stands up to remove his helmet just yeah. because she said that he was a creature in a mask. Yeah. Like, why would he care about taking his mask off to put her at ease somehow? Or subverting her expectations. Why why should he care what this girl thinks? Yeah. No, definitely. Um, And then when he starts going towards her to read her mind, apparently to get the map, he's like immediately distracted with all of these personal thoughts. Mm. And it's invasive and unsettling. Yeah. But it's also like, why the hell is he doing this? Why does he care if she's lonely or afraid or can't sleep? Yeah. So I, I do think that that language is supposed to be about the both of them. Yeah. You can see it kind of play across his face.
0: Yeah. Now, with Poe, like that scene, it's all about, like, just getting straight to the point, just wanting to learn what on earth he's done with this map. Like, there's no interest whatsoever, like, in Poe as a person beyond, like, saying, ha, you failed. Lol. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's the vibe. Whereas with Kylo, when he's with Rey, you just sense this, like, profound fascination with her. And obviously, it's. Is- is wrong and completely oversteps boundaries because you shouldn't just <laughs> invade someone's mind in order to learn more about them. But, like, you do get a sense with Kylo where in that interrogation scene he goes into Ray's mind, like, first and foremost, to find out more about her as a person, like, rather than, like, to search for the map. And, and that's stressed even more strongly in the novelization, where they make it clear that he's completely distracted and
1: that he essentially almost forgets about the map for a while because he's just... Yeah searching around her mind well you can see that in the scene itself because like he's he's crouched down by her talking about her thoughts and then when she says get out of my head he steps back and says right but i do still need to get this map from you (laughs) it's like he's always reminding himself that that's why they're there yeah um yeah it's really interesting yeah no it it is a
0: fascinating scene and it's obviously a very (laughs) divisive scene that's
1: provoked a lot of commentary um but oh, yeah. I've also seen people complain about how long this scene goes on for. Oh, really? I I, think, I do think that's a good point because this this film, we said before, it's so fast-paced. Mm-hmm. There's so much going on, so I think it's actually important to note that J.J. J. Abrams decided to take the time here to have this back and forth between these two characters. Yeah, like it's obviously supposed to be important because he spent valuable minutes on it. Yes. With this like, you know, you, you see the camera pan over to Kylo as he's like trying to get into her mind and then it pans back to her and it's like this this wrestling match. Yeah. And there's all this amazing sound that we've we've talked about before. Um, yeah, I think it speaks volumes mm. that he took the time to actually linger on this moment. It's obviously supposed to establish this profound connection between the two characters.
0: Yeah. No, like, so I think that scene is is almost unique in The Force Awakens. You could almost say that all the kind of race scenes are, but there's this, like, this special quality to it you don't find anywhere else in the film. Uh, And you see that in people's responses to it. Like, when people talk about that scene, while they either don't talk about it or they talk about it in terms that clearly convey that people don't quite know what to make of it, like, they don't Mm. know what they see in there. And I do think there's meant to be confusion because. So much of it is like Kylo speaking in code. Like, don't be afraid. I feel it too. What do you feel, Kylo? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Please expand. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's so unclear. Like, it's unclear to the point of being frustrating sometimes. But that's also what makes it so fun and interesting to discuss.
1: Yeah, and the other two moments between these two characters when things kind of slow down is when he first finds her in the forest and like starts mm. to walk towards her very slowly. Yeah. And then is reading in her mind, oh, you've seen the map. Okay, so now I'm deciding to take you instead of the droid. We yeah. have what we need. And the other moment is when they're on the cliff edge. Yes. And there's the choker shots back and forth with him looking at her and then she yeah. closes her eyes. Um, And the film does slow down and you can kind of hear it in the sound as well. Mm. That it's like something important is going on here, even if it seems really ambiguous at the moment.
0: Yeah. No, you are meant to be struck by the dynamic between those characters, like which when we discuss the commentary, J.J. Abrams himself makes it very clear that you're meant to be struck by there's something more going on here. Um, and yeah, it's just very exciting. And you talking about those choker shots when they're fighting the forest at the end, oh, like that just brings back happy, happy memories of seeing that sequence in the Science Museum, seventy mm It's just so overwhelming. It's really, really beautiful. Yeah. Um, did, did you see *Force Awakens* 70 millimeter?
1: Yes, I did. The first time I saw it, I saw it oh, in 70. That's so good.
0: Did that really strike you as well? That particular sequence with like the choke shots, the big, great big close-ups. Just oh, definitely.
1: The, the the yeah. scene that was most impressionable to, uh, impressionable to me was the interrogation. Mm. I came out of it like raving about the the chemistry that was in that scene. It was just so intense. Yeah. Um, but that moment on the cliff edge as well. It's like the the sound is used really well because it is like everything slows down and they have kind of the force theme as is like channeling up the force to, to strike back at him. Yeah. But there is this back and forth between them that it's like, why is the director choosing to focus on this? Yeah. It's not, it's not like Vader and Luke fighting. It's not just another action scene. Mm. Like something personal is happening here. Mm. And I think it's supposed to show the character's development. Like, uh, coming back to the idea that Finn and Kylo are foils to each other Um, Kylo and Rey obviously are so throughout the film Kylo is on a downward spiral right Mm. like he comes in at the beginning and he's the boss and everyone's supposed to be scared of him and everything and then by the end he is completely wrecked (laughs) Um, and the end is when Rey finally decides to pick up the saber and be the hero like she's been trying to run away from it for the whole movie she didn't want to leave Jakku she didn't want to really face the fact that she had all these amazing powers and can do stuff. Yeah. Um so they are kind of going past each other in that, that converse way.
0: Yeah. No, definitely it's so interesting. It's gonna be very exciting to see what happens to those characters in episode eight. Um, right, to get to the like final big scenes with Kylo, we obviously have the very emotional scene where he's reunited with his father. And then the subsequent scene in the forest, which we've already touched upon in relation to the dynamic with Ray there, um, and yeah, obviously the scene with Han is one of the most controversial and conversation-provoking <laughs> elements of the Force Awakens for obvious reasons because it's Han freaking Solo. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I really liked it as like a character piece for both of those people. Um, I think it's like, as I touched upon earlier, it's almost like you have two very different forms of masculinity being embodied by those characters in that scene. Like they are obviously characters first and foremost, but I like how Han is like this alpha male. Like, and he's always been like ultra macho and like the embodiment of everything that like the male viewer wishes he could be. Whereas Kylo is almost like everything that the male viewer Hates to accept about himself, like all the emotions and all the self-doubt and all the insecurity. Like, and it's all there, and it's so painfully obvious because it's all on show. And you have both those characters coming together, and I just find that a really interesting dynamic because there's tragedy there. Because even though Han is trying to like commune with his son and understand him and like get him on his side again, like it's not quite enough. He can't do it, and That's obviously why it ends so badly.
1: Yeah. I don't want to speak for anyone else, but Mm -hmm. from a very personal perspective, this scene really hits me hard because I don't have the best relationship with one of my parents. Mm. And I can see a lot of that dynamic in these interactions, the idea that people can love each other. Yeah. But there is this fundamental disconnect or miscommunication or somehow it's too late for one of the parties. Yeah. It's, It's really heartbreaking. But I think it's part of what makes Kylo a very relatable character for some people.
0: Yeah. I think um there's these character dynamics at the heart of Star Wars that people really do associate themselves with and latch onto because they do ring so true on a like a deep level. Like obviously it's all exaggerated and like over made overly dramatic because it's all set in space and these people have laser swords and stuff. But at the core of it there is something very real and very human. And you can see these like characters interacting with each other and like the emotions and the feelings there. And you can relate to that. And mm. yeah, and I think that's what makes stars so like enduring and powerful for people. Because if it were just like robots and spaceships and stuff without any of the human elements, it, it would all be pretty meaningless when you get to the bottom of it. Yeah, but there is more to it than that.
1: I do find it interesting that the emotional climax of the scene is between the antagonist and his father. Mm. I I know on a superficial level it's supposed to parallel Vader killing Obi Wan, but it yeah. really it really doesn't in terms of the emotion in that scene. Yeah, I know because of the prequels we now know that Anakin and Obi Wan were like brothers. Yeah. so that that lends a bit more weight to it. But even still, in in A New Hope, it it doesn't have that emotion. Yes. Um. But Rey is the observer in this situation. So even though she, she's the protagonist, it's not really about her in this moment. And a lot is made about the fact that um, Han is a father figure to her. And that's probably, that's very important to her because she hasn't had that before. Yeah. But she's known Han for a very short space of time at this point. And it's, you know, Kylo's the one who actually has blood connection to this character and has that history with him. Yeah. So it's, it's very much his emotional climax, not necessarily hers.
0: Yeah, no, exactly. You, you almost forget Ray and Finn are there. Like, apart from the like brief cutaways to like them on the balcony, it is very much like ha- Han and Kylo's scene.
1: Yeah, I and... think ha- Finn and Ray are almost like um, the embodiment of the audience in that scene. Yeah, They're totally one the trepidation. They're hopeful that Kylo will make the right decision. They have mm. this look of hope before horror. But it's it's not really about them. It's about the two people on the bridge. Yeah, no, that's
0: totally right. Um, it's just so well acted. Like those performances, they're just so great in that scene. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you you really feel the power of it, and I, and I love um, how you see Carlo like he starts to, to tear up and become emotional, like because it just becomes too much for him, like when he's saying I'm being torn apart, like and you know for a fact that he means every single word he says. Yeah, like there's no deceit there. He's not trying to mislead or trick his father. He, he's just in this state of acute psychological distress, and like, and, and it's even more heartbreaking because you can see how that breaks Han's heart in turn. Yeah, because this is his little boy. Like he does not want to see his little boy being sad. Like because, for all like Han is like in many ways like the ultimate like guy, like the embodiment of like these mas- masculine archetypes. Like he, he is like emotional and a softy deep down. He loves Leia. The core cool mm-hmm. of his story in the original trilogy is a love story and that they end up getting married and having a baby. And it's lovely. Um, and, and yeah, like the, that scene is the climax of Han's journey, not just in the force awakens, but across all the films is that as him finally facing up to the responsibility of his child and literally giving his life for his child's sake, he didn't go there wanting to die. But he, he must have known that that was a risk he stood because of what his son had become at that point and the nature of where he was going in order to try and get him back.
1: Yeah, I don't think he truly allows himself to understand the horror of the situation because, you know, for psychological reasons, it would be hard to accept Um, when he's talking about one boy ruined it all or destroyed mm. it all. Like, it's obviously not clear that he's talking about his son at that point. Yeah. Um, And then when he's talking to Leia he kind of brushes it off as, oh, there's nothing more we could have done. There's too yeah. much Vader in him. It's not until he sees Ben and decides to call out and go across to him mm. that it really hits him what's happened. Yeah. And he has to face this and do whatever he can to help.
0: Yeah. No, I, I think... like obviously, It's difficult to say because we really don't know much about what the relationship between Kylo and Ham was like when Ben was like a child. And we don't know that much about the background there. But you almost get the sense that this is like the first time that he's truly like being able to like connect like, and really acknowledge what his son is and like in what a desperate, desperate state he is and how much he needs his help.
1: Yeah, there are little clues in Bloodline that they weren't particularly close because mm. obviously at the time that book's set, he's been off with Luke. We don't know how long, but he's not been with his family. Yeah. Or uh, his mother and father anyway. And then there's these. P- bits that Leia's thinking about hand mentoring other younger pilots. Yes. And that you almost get the sense that he's trying to fill this void. Mm. And then when he meets Ray, she might be in that right re- that vein as well. Mm. That he immediately connects with this young person who is like his son in ways that he doesn't quite appreciate yet. Yeah. I don't think yeah that they, they have this false sensitivity, but he doesn't know that. He's focusing on the fact that she's great with mechanics and a great pilot. And can help him in that way. So it's yeah. really quite sad.
0: It is very sad. I, I think, like you say, a lot of Han it's about like denial and like running away from like what his actual situation is and what his son is. Mm. Um and just fate doesn't allow him to escape from that properly. Like and it just keeps on coming back to bash him over the head of it.
1: Yeah. Um, I, I think because of that though, I I this scene is going to be crucial to the rest of the story.
0: Mm, totally. Like,
1: 'Cause as JJ says, Kylo instantly regrets what he's done. Mm. So that has to have an impact on his arc for the rest of the trilogy. Yeah. Otherwise it's like, oh, that didn't happen.
0: <laughs> yeah, no exactly. it's not an accident that um like the final scene with like Han is Han like touching his son's face. Yeah. Like and that's after he knows he's dead. Ah, uh, basically, because he's obviously been gutted with a lightsaber and he still has that forgiveness and love and compassion for his son
1: yeah i think in um one of the junior novels they they even say something about um han hopes that one day his son can forgive him in turn yeah to to think that after your son just stabbed you mm. is something
0: it really is and i i
1: don't know if it means that it's going to come out that anything actually happened like in a tangible way or if it's in the sense that han wasn't able to be there for him, and not be- through necessarily like a fault of his own, mm. but that because he wasn't force sensitive, and Ben clearly is very strong. Yeah, that they weren't able to truly connect.
0: Yeah, no, I, I, I. I that's my impression of their relationship. That just because Han could not understand the force, the force and could not like get to grips with what that meant for the type of person his son was going to be, or the destiny he was going to have, he could never really like understand or connect with him. You get a sense from what Leia says in the novelization that she really didn't think Han was very good at understanding Ben, and didn't feel like he could like empathise with him or talk to him in the way that he needed to be spoken to, which is yeah. part of the, why she sent him to Luke, because she hoped that Luke could do better, because he was also Force sensitive and look what look how that went <laughs> yeah um, we also
1: know from bloodline that it was a secret that leia was vader's daughter right mm-hmm. and yeah. even ben didn't know that so if you can imagine him like feeling growing up that he can't relate to his father he can't really connect to him in a deep profound way and then all of a sudden finds out that his grandfather was this dark sith lord <laughs> very strong in the force the mm. chosen one yeah it might draw him to that life himself that he would feel like oh finally I have this father figure Yeah, even though he's dead but I can relate to him more than my own father.
0: Yeah though it's really interesting like when you think about it Kylo has like four different fa- father figures almost because <laughs> he has Han he has Snoke he has Luke because Luke depending on how old Ben was when he was sent to him which seems likely to have been like when he was a teen so like still relatively young, he was mm. had to kind of feel like a surrogate father role, and then you have Vader. Yeah. So there's like all these different like masculine presences, and it's no wonder he's confused because <laughs> yeah. like he has like no cornerstone. Lots of daddy issues. Yeah, so many daddy issues. <laughs> <laughs> um, right. Is there anything else that we want to say?
1: Uh, I think that kind of sums up stuff in the Force Awakens. I and mean, there's a lot more to say about Kylo, but. We should maybe save that for a future discussion.
0: Yeah, no, we're encroaching upon two hours. So I think we should move swiftly on to questions at this point. (laughs) Um, Right, if you have any questions for the podcast, please email them through to us at scavengershoard at gmail.com. Right, and we're just going to quickly get through the questions we had waiting for us. And the first question is from Sam. Hey there, I discovered your show on YouTube recently and really enjoy listening, so couldn't resist sending you ladies an email. Thank you. So I guess my main question is on the hot topic of the potential Ray Kyler romance thread going forward, particularly in regards to the direction conclusion, which I think is more up for grabs than the question of will they, won't they? One possibility I see is a tragic romance scenario, almost in the way of a Shakespearean tragedy type situation, especially if the romance turns out to be one-sided. I can't help but wonder, though, considering the family audience, if the Disney execs, Lucasfilm writers, have the balls to put down something so emotionally complex and potentially heartrending. I mean, yeah, there have been some great moving moments throughout the saga, but nothing I personally would group with the kind of situation I'm envisioning here. We've already seen what betrayal abandonment has done to Kylo Ben already, i.e. (laughs) Darkseid, so what would being rejected by Rey do to this guy? If they were to take the story in that direction, of course... Which returns to my initial question, would they? So, mm. Kirsty. This Ooh. is like
1: the big question, right? Yes. It's <laughs> for Raylow best... shippers, anyway. Yeah, it's a very heavy and loaded question. <laughs> yeah. So, just talking from my perspective, for the first few months after watching the film, I was convinced that Kylo's um, interest in Ray would remain one sided. Mm. Um, because, you know, just looking at the first film, it's like, how the hell are they going to get Ray to feel something for this guy? Like, yeah. he's a mess. Um, but then I realised that if it was going to be one-sided throughout the whole trilogy, um, especially if that ends up factoring into some kind of redemption for Kylo, whatever redemption ends up looking like, mm. does that make the story too much about him? Yeah. Because if Ray is simply his muse, who doesn't actually go on a transformative journey herself in terms of an emotional turnaround or 180 towards a character who she currently hates, just yeah. like Luke did Vader. Mm. Um, that seems to make it more about him. Yeah. So it might be that her conflicted feelings for Kylo, because you can tell already that she's kind of confused by how he's behaving around her. Mm. That might end up being a major source of her beginning to understand how the darkness and light can coexist. Yes. Um not just within one person, but as a concept, you know, like a worldview. She's the only character who's been in his mind and can understand that conflict that's going on in him and that she might come to feel as well. Yeah. and It just comes back to this idea for me that, you know, at the beginning of Star Wars, no one would have anticipated that Luke um, could love Vader. Yeah. Like, that just wasn't on... The radar yeah um and if we're going to look at it from a Jungian sense which obviously you're supposed to do in star wars like there's this concept of the shadow Mm. for ray's journey to be completed she has to integrate with the shadow at some point yeah and kylo is very much her shadow just like vader was luke's
0: yeah no you express it so well i'm I'm not sure what else i have to add (laughs) (laughs) well
1: Um, we can also talk about you know you have to talk about the genre of star wars as what it is which is kind of this optimistic it has a lot of angst and drama but in the end, it it has this optimistic tone. It's for children.
0: Yeah. No, totally. Um. Yeah, like I I think having it the dynamic resolve from that point of view with like Ray saying no, go away, <laughs> or something along those lines, it's not very like satisfying, like just on on like a basic narrative level. Um like, that ten- doesn't tend to be how stories work, especially not these kinds of stories. Like, in a tragic story, like, that might happen, like, as a awful, sad end to a love story, and then, like, the guy, like, tops himself or is, like, never seen again or something. Um, But that is not Star Wars. Star Wars is all about optimism and hope and reconciliation and ultimately love. So I think if they do go down the route of like, developing this relationship between Ray and Kylo, then it is pro- probably going to have at least an optimistic ending. I, I don't necessarily think, like, white picket fence and two <laughs> five children and a little dog Fido. Um, no. <laughs> yeah, I think that's um, thinking way too optimistically. But I think you could definitely see it on, like, notes where there's, like, mutual love there and care for each other like even if those characters can't necessarily be together like that might be the tragedy for example it could be bittersweet in that they love each other but kylo has to leave like he has to go off to a tone like ronin style
1: yeah that kind of pays the way for a future trilogy right if you keep things a bit more open-ended like that yeah uh, i just and i just want to point out because ugh, i know the idea of kylo and Ray romance we've talked about before gets a lot of flack mm. but even if these characters were related the story would still be kind of similar. It would just be familial love instead of romantic. Yes. Because if if Rey turned out to be Kylo's younger sister or younger cousin, Mm. it would still be about them forming this connection. Yes. It it doesn't make it any less profound. It's just a different kind of relationship.
0: Yeah. No, Zaddy, I think The Force Awakens makes it perfectly clear that this is the central relationship of this new trilogy. Like, this is the new Luke and Vader. And I say, we don't think that's familial. We think it's more likely to go in the direction of romance. But, like, either way, familial or non-familial, there is going to be, like, this core of, like, seeing beyond the initial, like, hatred and lack of understanding and resolving towards something more beautiful
1: and, like, redemptive.
0: Like, yeah, otherwise it,
1: not Yeah, the arc has to go one way or the other. So it, The Force Awakens gives you this massive clue because it's like these characters are enemies now. Mm. So they can't be by the end. Whereas if you look at the prequel trilogy, yes, it turned out to be a tragedy, but it was tragic because of the love that those characters had in the first place. Whether you're looking at Anakin and Obi-Wan or Anakin and Padme. Yes. You have to have something that's lost. Mm. So if these two characters didn't grow up together and don't love each other now, Mm, then where is it going? Because you have to have some stakes there if they're already enemies and they just stay enemies. It's like, oh, okay. Well, that was a bit of, kind of pointless. Neither character went on a journey in relation to the other.
0: Yeah, no, exactly. If it's like, they by the end of The Force Awakens, it's like, I hate you. By the end of episode nine, I hate you. <laughs> exactly. It's not a very um dynamic character arc, to put it mildly. Yeah. So yeah, like, I definitely think there's going to be like, at least a note of optimism to end on. Like, I think it probably will be more ambiguous than Return of the Jedi because Return of the Jedi is literally everyone around a campfire singing like Kumbaya. <laughs> like, so it's yeah. all so happy and perfect. And I think they are going to want to leave more room open for the future stories to be told than Return of the Jedi did. Um, but yeah, it should still end on a happy note. And I think that precludes the kind of scenario you suggest but I I do think that like there's interest in story possibilities and like that sense of tragedy but I I just don't see that being the way they go the films
1: yeah I think you know as we said at the beginning The Force Awakens is an optimistic film but it has this tragedy at its core Mm. what happens between Kylo and Han Yeah, you have to see some kind of resolution by the end of the story that Kylo somehow made peace with what he's done or is trying to atone for what he's done um, And, you know, people have different ideas about redemption. I know we're going to have a future episode on this, so I don't want to keep talking about it. <laughs> yes. um, but the story has to move in some kind of direction.
0: Yeah, no, exactly. it has to be progress. Right. The next question is from Mark. First of all, great podcast. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Um, I'm quite new to this side of the fandom, and after listening to a lot of Rebel Force Radio and making Star Wars Now This Is Podcasting, it's refreshing to hear a great female perspective of current topics and debates. Thank you so much. That's really (laughs) cool to hear. Um, Also, I really appreciate that you addressed the Mary Sue issue and the sexist point of view of some people while staying politically correct and not stereotyping them as the general male Star Wars audience. To my question, how do you think Ben will redeem himself? sacrificing himself to de- so defeat Snoke might be a no-brainer, but what and who is going to turn him back to the light? Kirsty! <laughs> uh,
1: well, as we were just talking about, I think the, the way that he feels after killing Han is going to be the start of Kylo's redemption. Yes. Um, I don't think that necessarily means he's going to be perfect in Episode 8 and everything's going to be resolved. I actually think that things might get a lot worse for him. Yes. Um, at least for the first half of Episode 8. um. But Ray might now be the only character who hasn't given up on him because she has this insight into what he's thinking and feeling that other characters, ne- like, they might not. Mm. Um, so, spoiler territory, just to warn people, I'm going to talk about a little spoiler here. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, making Star Wars team have hinted that she saw something else in his mind during the interrogation scene besides the Vader thing. Mm. So, and... um. I think Jason Ward said at some point that that's going to have ramifications for the, the future story. Yeah. So we don't know what that is yet, but I think there's going to be this intimate connection between them. Like she knows things that other people don't, and we know she's going to have that um, force vision that kind yeah. of goes back to what happened before the events of the film. Um. So I do think there's likely to be this element of self-sacrifice and I know we're gonna have a sec- segment at some point on Ryan Johnson's films, but I do think this is quite a common theme for his stories. Mm. Um, so I could see something big happening at the end of Episode Eight that kind of leaves us wondering whether Kylo is gonna live or die. Yeah. What do you think?
0: I definitely think they need to keep us in suspense about him. So, like, because if there is a redemption, then it wouldn't be until Episode Nine. I don't think. Is it possible? Like, it could be in Episode Eight. But I think it's more likely that we begin to see like more signs that they're moving in that direction in episode eight. Mm. But then those seeds actually come to fruition like in episode nine. So I can see like them developing the Kylo and Ray relationship more, and then through that you come in to appreciate more about why Kylo became Kylo in the first place, and actually see a future for him in some way, like potentially with Ray, or at least you can see the hope for redemption for him because Ray sees that. And then in episode nine, we actually really see him act and like make the, and take actions. Don't know which actions because who knows what happens in episode (laughs) nine at this point um, that actually justify that redemption and make you feel that he is truly atoning for what he's done and that he wants to be redeemed. Because I think that's, a lot of people's problem with the whole redemption question is that in Force Awakens, he is very actively trying not to be redeemed.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, this is the thing, right? You see a lot of people um, who they hate Kylo for what he's done. And I completely get it. You yeah. know, you're supposed to at this point, like this is them setting up the story. Mm. If If he wasn't doing horrible things and acting like a villain, then there would be nothing to redeem him from.
0: <laughs> yes, exactly. So,
1: yeah. So there are a little, there are seeds of doubt. He's obviously a conflicted person and he clearly regrets what he's done at the end. Yes. But he does have to take action for people to say, okay, redemption is coming. What I think episode eight is likely to do is to set up this investment the audience has in him being redeemed. And I think part of that will be making it clear to people that Rey is not related to the Skywalkers mm. because um, the idea that she might be, um, it doesn't make Kylo as important as he might end up being to the story if he's the sole Skywalker yeah um if if the general audience thinks that Rey is related there's not such a high stakes there because she's on the good side and she can continue the line yeah um and you know it just doesn't raise the stakes in quite the same way but the the trick would be getting people invested in the idea of Kylo being redeemed actually rooting for it because at the moment people are angry at him
0: (laughs) yeah exactly it's going to take a lot for People to get past that whole hand Solo issue, shall we say. <laughs> it's going to be um, Kylo's Annis Horribles, or however you pronounce it. Mm. Um, yeah, um, I would ask for the whole thing, will he kill Snoke? I think that's very likely. I, I'd like to see Kylo and Ray kill Snoke together. Preferably while holding the same lightsaber. Something badass like that. Yeah,
1: I haven't really thought about specific scenarios like that, but there does have to be this element of them working together, because... You know, Ray is the main character, so she has to have a huge antagonist like that to overcome. And it's, she's already beat Kylo, Mm. you know? He can't be an antagonist in that way for her again. Yeah. I'm sure in episode eight, they're going to big up the whole them coming together for round two of the Saber fight. (laughs) Yes. And this idea that he's probably going to beat her because she lost, uh, he lost last time. Yeah. But it can't be, okay, episode nine, the same thing's happening again, you know? Yeah. So it's not very thrilling is it (laughs) no there has to be something bigger than that and i think it must be them taking down Snoke together at some point
0: yeah no i think that's likely to be episode nine material but we will see um right and then the final question is from edward right and it is i'm sure you have all gone over this but i have to ask have the race skywalker crowd consider that the only two possibilities that would make that a reality are very dastardly indeed. <laughs> <laughs> that would essentially put Luke on par with the baddies of this universe. First scenario, Luke met a woman and had Ray. At some point for reasons unknown, the mother is removed from the equation. Luke takes Ray and abandons Hanjuku for reasons unknown, then proceeds to train Ben for five years. And when it all turns to shite, instead of retrieving his daughter, he disappears into the void to gallivant from temple to temple in hope of what? Does it even matter at that point? Second scenario, and this is somehow worse. <laughs> Luke meets a woman. They have worry, And at some point, for unknown reasons, the mother leaves Luke, takes Ray, abandons her on Jakku, and then disappears. All the while, Luke carries on as if all is well, and we have a Jerry Springer family in Star Wars. <laughs> I can't reconcile these things in my head. Everyone involved is an asshole, and Ray was straight dumped on. No thanks. Anyhow, can't wait for the new podcast. You guys rock. Thank
1: you. Oh, thank you. All these lovely emails from people.
0: Yeah, no, they're really nice. It's awesome. I, I could get used to this. <laughs> um, I, I won't say there's a third scenario. One night stand.
1: Oh, yeah, that sounds very Disney. <laughs> Not to, like, slut shame Luke Skywalker <laughs> or anything. Yeah. You do, you Luke. You know, no, no judgment.
0: Yeah, you don't but, know Luke could be into free love. <laughs>
1: yeah, anyone who's read Bloodline knows that they, it's actually quite funny. They made a point of emphasising that Ben Solo was conceived after Hannah and Leia got married. <laughs> yes, it seems unnecessary because it's like can we we already knew that they were in love and in a committed relationship. But that, that is you know. very
0: like um, we're out to please the conservative family <laughs> organisation of America. <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> but you know it does it's another reminder that Star Wars is kind of in that fairy tale realm right Mm -hmm. that you can have side characters with kind of murky origins like Armitage Hux we now know that he is a bastard
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I mean that's a slur by the way he's literally literally
1: a bastard yeah Yeah. he's he's a bastard in the other sense too come on
0: Oh come on! I, I don't, <laughs> I don't think you're um, looking at Hux um, deeply enough. I, I'm sure he likes flower arranging and stuff in his free time. No,
1: he does have that cute cat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Go, Millicent. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of agree with Edward here. I can't think of a scenario in which Luke is Rey's dad and somehow comes out of this looking good. Mm. Um, because it's not like he just left her somewhere for safekeeping. Mm-hmm. Jakku is horrible. Yeah. Every day she was fighting for her life. Um, Uncar was treating her like crap, mm. like it's really horrible. She was just so alone, yeah. And I, it's just not the same as leaving her somewhere like Naboo to take care of her, yeah. Like, she didn't have anyone else around,
0: yeah. It's like, it's like people act like it would be like Luke doing what was done to him, but Luke was oh, left with a loving uncle and aunt who wanted a baby and raised Luke as if he were their own child. And yeah, don't get me wrong, Tatooine boring as hell but like luke wasn't like suffering extreme poverty or having to fight to survive
1: yeah i think it's part like jj went out of his way to show how terrible ray's life was you know it's not there by accident it's i think it's actually partly to say hey do you really think our heroes would do this to this girl yeah like because i i can't i can't Mm. think that hanalea or luke would do that to her yeah um
0: no, I think the points Edward has raised, there are the reasons why like I came to realise that Rey Skywalker just wasn't viable.
1: Yeah. I know that not every Star Wars fan has a red bloodline, so they might not realise that um, Luke was still gallivanting around, as he puts it, with Ben yeah. um, six years before The Force Awakens. Mm. So, you know, Rey had been on Jakku for a long time, even before then. Yes, so it just doesn't make sense for him to be carrying on as if nothing happened. He, if he was her father, he'd be spending every waking moment looking for her.
0: Yeah, no you know, expect- especially
1: considering what happened to him with his parents.
0: Yeah, no, totally. And these people—they're all force-sensitive. They should be able to sense each other. They make a very clear point of Leia being able to sense family members across vast distances <laughs> in space, yeah. and like Luke is an actual trained Jedi. So if anyone, like, knows where their child is in
1: the galaxy, Luke would know. Yeah. But (laughs) There are no foreshadowing hints in The Force Awakens that Rey is a lost child that they've been looking for. You know, even if Han and Leia aren't her parents, they're her aunt and uncle, Yes. there's nothing. Like, Han meets her, spends several days with her, bonds with her, and has no suspicion about who she is. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't mention a thing to Leia. Leia is willing to blow up Starkiller Base with her on it. Like, mm-hmm. actually, you know, when Finn Finn comes in and says, "I'm oh, my friend. I need to go and rescue her." She's like, "Yeah, yeah, but I need your information." Mm-hmm. Like, it's not her priority to look for Rey. Yeah,
0: no, exactly. They're almost kind of like callous <laughs> about yeah. Rey, to be honest. Like that, they almost like treat her as like a bargaining chip
1: in order yeah. to um, like secure Finn's cooperation. Yeah. Well, Kylo goes into her, mom, reads her thoughts and doesn't come out with the fact that she's related to him. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, there's nothing that up. You really have to explain away an awful lot of the story for it to make any kind of sense.
0: Yeah. No, it takes a lot of contrivance. Yeah. Um, Right. So I think we're done with questions now. And since we're running on quite long, (laughs) um, we should probably wrap this up. Um, I'm Rachel. You can find me on Star Wars Nonsense on Tumblr.
1: And Kirsty? I'm Basila Bay on Tumblr and Scavengers Horde on Twitter. So people should come and say hello to us there. Totally. Twitter's the place to be. (laughs) You have to get a bit of singing in every episode if you notice that.
0: (laughs) I do. I'm secretly a frustrated musical theatre actor.
1: (laughs) I've had comments from people who enjoy your singing very much.
0: Oh, that's very kind. Thank you, people. One day, (laughs) Kirsty, we'll do a musical episode where everything (laughs) is sung. (laughs) That that would be quite So a- it will be like um, J. J Abrams does a commentary for the Force Awakens.
1: <laughs> I could easily see a musical version of the Force Awakens. because yes. it has such a fairy tale quality yeah. to it. Like Ray just bursts into song as she yeah. runs into the forest.
0: <laughs> yeah, like um, Kylo could all sing like Nightwish songs or something.
1: You're <laughs> <laughs> of the opera.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes. Past the point of no return. <laughs> God. Okay, I think that's a sure sign I need to stop. Okay. Um, thank you for listening, everyone. And come back next week. And review us on iTunes, please. Please. Please be desperate, please. <laughs> okay, bye. Bye.